Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Next, we return to France, where the largely Catholic power structure continued to fulminate about the nefarious influence of the Masons for nearly a century after the Revolution. We don't know if you've noticed, but many of the societies we've covered here have ended up face-to-face with a pretty consistent enemy. The Catholic Church ends up playing the bad guy in many of these stories, whether they're rooting out ancient heresies, standing by while the Templars are destroyed, persecuting the Cathars off the face of the earth, playing the heavy in the holy blood Dan Brown priory nonsense, or keeping a wary eye on this whole Rosicrucian thing. All of which makes sense when you think about it. The Church is still a huge and powerful institution to this day, in spite of the seemingly never-ending scandals that have plagued it over recent decades. But the modern Church is a pale shadow of the near-omnipotent influence that the papacy and its institutions once wielded over virtually all of modern Europe and beyond. The centuries in which these various societies have emerged, flowered, and eventually faded have been the same era in which the Church has fought one long rearguard action to maintain its influence or outright control over matters both spiritual and political. And yet, for all its efforts, it has consistently lost influence. First to the emerging Protestant movement, then to the rise of secular nation-states, now to both other, more dynamic religions, Islam, Mormonism, etc., and perhaps more disturbingly for a religious organization, the growing cohort of nuns. That is, those who identify with no particular denomination or religious practice. Atheists, agnostics, and the indifferent. In other words, basically all of the European white people whose great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were all loyal Christians, mostly Catholics, whether they liked it or not. So our secret societies have been just one more headache for the Church, nostalgic for its all-powerful glory days to deal with. But the Masons were a particular thorn in the side of the papacy, and their growth was one of a number of reasons why the Holy See was in turmoil in the 19th century. The Church hates Freemasonry from the very beginning. Freemasonry has a kind of code of religious tolerance in Freemasonry in its original form. As long as you believe in a God, you can be from any religion and become a Freemason. And Freemasons, one of the reasons they refer to God as the great architect of the universe is that they don't want to pick one religious code over another. They want that to be as welcoming a vision of religiosity as possible. And to the Catholic Church of the 18th century, especially given the Freemasons' way with secrecy, which galvanizes anybody who's got suspicions about Freemason, this was heresy, if not devil worship. The Church had a monopoly on truth and tolerance was heresy. Now, that Church hatred of Freemasonry and suspicion of Freemasonry really comes into its own in the 19th century. I've already talked a little bit about the Abbe Barwell and the birth of the conspiracy theory centered on the Freemasons. But you have to remember that after the French Revolution, the early 19th century is a catastrophe for the Catholic Church. The very bases of the world thrown an altar 
are profoundly shaken. You get industrialization ripping people away from their traditional roots in rural communities. You get new materialistic philosophies. And it culminates, of course, for the church in 1870, when Italy, having been unified 10 years earlier, moves in and takes over what is left of the church's land. For more than a millennium, the Pope had been a Pope king. He had had a big swathe of land across central Italy. Now his power was restricted to Vatican City. Rome became the capital of Italy and notional power over territory in Vatican City and spiritual power. And that was disastrous for the church. It showed that the devil was at work in human affairs, as was already clear in any case from the French Revolution and from the many other revolutions of the early 19th century in Italy, but also far beyond. And at that point, the conspiracy theory about the Freemasons becomes the official ideology of the Catholic Church. In 1850, a journal is founded called Civiltà Cattolica, Catholic Civilization, which is to be the mouthpiece of these conspiracy theories, edited by Jesuits, commenting on world affairs and politics, spread through churches right round the world. Civiltà Cattolica was the nearest thing to the authorised voice of the papacy on political affairs. And its official line was that everything bad about the modern world was the fault of the Freemasons. On the other hand, Freemasons are beginning to associate themselves with the cause of lay government a state separated from religion, a state governed in the interests of the nation and the people and not legitimated directly by God and the church. So you get things like movements for civil marriage and cremation and education free of religious influence. Thus, with Masons continuing their influence and the church seeing ever more threat from those same Masons, we're all set for a culture war. And Freemasons, particularly in Catholic Europe, who have learnt to see the church as an enemy, are in the forefront of what becomes a culture war, fought out through these political battles, but also through monuments and novels and so on. And you get culture warriors on both sides. And one of those culture warriors, very much on the lay side, was a guy called Leo Taxil, who in the 1860s and 70s is writing a whole load of scurrilous pamphlets and books about female popes and the pope's lovers and lascivious Jesuits and anti-church polemic of the most scurrilous kind. And he is excommunicated. You know, he's only in his mid-20s and he manages to get excommunicated, which means, you know, he's on his way to hell. He's not kidding about the scurrilous titles, which included such astonishing works as 1881's The Bible for Laughs and The Secret Loves of Pius IX. You know he's going to look up the one about lascivious Jesuits, don't you? We're not discussing my private time, Unicorn. Anyway, Taxel was so operatically and publicly, and we might add profitably, anti-Catholic that he managed to get himself excommunicated from the church by the tender age of 26. As Dickey's book notes, this, quote, one-way ticket to hell only encouraged him. 
The book also points out that Taxel was hardly a heroic figure even for church haters, with a reputation for loose ethics and a number of claims brought against him for slander and plagiarism. Which makes what came next all the more surprising. And then suddenly, he seems to undergo a miraculous conversion. He goes to see the editors of an important Catholic journal in France and convinces them of his sincerity. He's embraced by the church. He confesses, behind the secret of confession, confesses to having committed a murder on the order of the Freemason. And he says, I want to expose to you, I know, I have seen the demonic secret, the devil-worshipping secrets, what really is going on in the Masonic lodges. I've seen the heart of the conspiracy and I can tell you all about it. And so he's very quickly granted a no-show job in Catholic Library. He gets publishing deals with Catholic publishers and publications like Civiltà Cattolica, Catholic Civilization, endorse and review his works. And he starts to publish more and more extraordinary revelations about sexual perversity and devil worship carried out by the Freemasons. He also starts to write under various pseudonyms, which a lot of people don't know about at the time. One is this Dr. Bataille, who supposedly travels the world, unearthing Masonic conspiracy everywhere. He travels in India and China. The triads are part of this demonic conspiracy. He visits the Masonic poison factory that the Masons used to make these special poisons to kill lots of people that we assumed had just had heart attacks or died of cancer, but had actually been killed by the Freemasons with poisons manufactured in these hellish laboratories deep within the rock of Gibraltar. He talks about witnessing lesbian sexual orgies carried out in special elite demonic Masonic lodges called Triangles. We should note here that his 1885 conversion and the embrace by his Catholic former enemies that accompanied it turned out to be quite lucrative for the repentant freethinker. As the book notes, Within days of his conversion, he had won the trust of numerous Parisian priests, a job in a Catholic bookshop, a deal with a Catholic publisher, a percentage of the profits from sales of his future books, and guaranteed free publicity in the Catholic press. He could now lend his pen to a sacred cause, obeying the exhortation in Humanum Genus to tear the mask from Freemasonry. So, he's in the literary catbird seat, with the enthusiastic backing of one of the most powerful institutions in the world. Clearly, the first step was an autobiography, Confessions of a Former Freethinker, which he published in 1887. The book reveals that his fall away from the warm embrace of the Mother Church was caused by his discovery at the tender age of 14 of a manual promulgated by the evil, evil Masons. Young Taxel dedicated himself to the craft and ignored his religious education, ran away from home, engaged in the sins of the flesh with criminals and ladies of the evening. You know the drill. He proved too independent-minded to stick with Freemasonry's rules, though, and quit by 1881, but only after he had learned the Masons' real, horrifying, demonic secrets. And he was going to tell his eager, pious readers every lascivious detail. Hmm. Different audience, but it sounds like he was still in the scandalous, lurid expose business. Yeah, but for the Lord, so it was okay. Having exposed so much, you would think that Taxel would have plumbed the depths of Masonic depravity. Not so. In 1892, a pseudonymous author calling himself Dr. Bataille revealed still more shocking facts about the demonic Masonic underground. 
And people didn't believe this guy, right? I mean, who's going to listen to the arguments of some coward who won't even reveal his real name? You're a mean lady, Dana. If that is your real name, which it's not, obviously, or it would be a shitty pseudonym. Jesus, people, keep up. Anyway, this Dr. Bataille's revelations made Taxels seem tame. It turns out that the entire religion of Hinduism was just a demonic front secretly run by British Freemasons in the Raj. But more importantly for our story, Bataille also met none other than Albert Pike, Confederate general, chronicler of the Scottish Rite, and racist asshole, who showed him a flame-belching demonic telephone shaped like a frog. Wait, what? That's what the man said. Seriously. What, you want more evidence? He also saw a crocodile with wings appear at a seance in England, whereupon it proceeded to play the piano. Come on, Jesuit. No one believes this shit, did they? Only like the whole French Catholic hierarchy, and only for like a decade plus. Oh, there were definitely questions about both Taxel's and Dr. Bataille's stories, but the in-house publications of the Mother Church supported them. And after all, they were really only an extension of the anti-Masonic conspiracy theorizing the Church had been doing for more than a century by that point. Which brings us to the moment in the story where we have to introduce Diana Vaughn, who would play a major role in future developments. Half French and half American, she was an anomaly among demonologists. At her initiation to the degree of Templar Mistress, a ceremony conducted in Paris by Sophia Sappho, she flew in the face of Palladian Orthodoxy by refusing to spit on the consecrated host. Diana believed that Lucifer was in fact a good god, and that Adonai, as the paladists called the Christian deity, was a force for evil who was incapable of becoming flesh in a communion wafer. Diana's case generated furious debate in the Satanist community, but she was protected from being punished by her personal demon and fiancé, Asmodeus, who had given her a magical lion's tail that flogged anyone who spoke out against her. Well, miracle of miracles, Ms. Vaughn decided, just as Taxel had nine years earlier, to renounce her former life and return to the embrace of Mother Church. And then another turncoat comes out, who this time is a woman who talks about leading female Freemasons who've mated with demons in order to generate the Antichrist who will be born at some point early in the 1960s, and so on and so forth. And all of this gets more and more and more far-fetched. And he brings along a good slice of the Catholic Church and Catholic public opinion with him. Gradually, towards the end of a kind of decade of these revelations, people start to get suspicious. And they say, hang on, has he really seen this? And eventually, Taxil says, right, I'm sick of these devil-inspired suspicions about these writings of the various Masonic confessions that have been inspired by my revelations. We're going to hold a press conference at which we will reveal her. Hitherto, she'd been kept secret. We're going to show you the truth. We're going to put it out there in public in Paris in April. And at that press conference, crowded with journalists from all over the world and from both sides of this culture war, he says, actually, it was all a hoax. I made it all up. Ha ha ha, isn't that funny? Nobody thought it was particularly funny at the time. He was a pretty distasteful character. Astonishing that he'd managed to keep this up for so long and alienated so many of his former friends and put his marriage at risk and all kinds of things. So, at that eventful press conference in 1897, the hoax was fully, completely, comprehensively exposed by the very people who had created it. 
And as you would expect, from that day forward, everyone stopped believing in the ridiculous pseudo-revelations that Vaughn, Taxel, and Bataille, i.e. Taxel writing under another name, had published during their long prank. Of course, they did no such thing. Some people within the church continued to believe what he said. They said, no, that wasn't the real Leo Taxel. That was a substitute who'd been put in by the devil, who'd actually murdered the real Leo Taxel shortly before. This determination to continue believing what is obviously, demonstrably, a bizarre conspiracist fantasy of sinister forces, drenched in the blood of innocence, writhing in orgiastic joy as they're rogered by demons and give God the finger, reminds us of one of our favorite ever topics, the artistic career of one Jack Chick. Paranoid Strain Digression, but it's pretty good. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Presumably, many of you who live in America may have come across the works of Mr. Chick and his ministry. He's most famous for small, oblong cartoon pamphlets with intriguing titles like Gomez is Coming, Somebody Goofed, and Where's Rabbi Waxman? In case you're wondering, Rabbi Waxman is burning in the lake of fire because he didn't accept Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Indeed. Anyway, each of these booklets tells a simple story about how somebody or other didn't do what Jack Chick's very very fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible told them to. And that's why they're in the aforementioned Lake of Fire. Or in the more hopeful ones, like the anti-evolution Big Daddy, the biology professor who until moments before had been so sure of his evolutionary worldview, accepts the easily debunked creationist nonsense spouted by a confident know-nothing student and renounces his adherence to the scientific method in favor of the advanced theory that... Magic man done it! You are aware, surely, that nobody listening to this has a complete set of Jack Chick tracks in the back of his or her dresser, right? Well, I mean... Wait, nobody? No. But I do. We all know. Because they're funny. We know you think so. Does Lady Jessard think they're funny? More like... sad? We get it. Super funny to pass around in college, but maybe a middle-aged man should have moved on? Sounds about right. Okay, all of this is hurtful, but I'm not even talking about those little tracts. Ha, I'm talking about a much more obscure thing that Jack Chick did. Oh, joy. That is, this unbelievable, literally, full-sized comic book series about the supposedly real-life adventures of a former Catholic priest turned evangelical anti-Catholic activist, Alberto Rivera. After abjuring his Catholic faith, Alberto began telling his story to anti-Catholic Protestant evangelical groups in the U.S., Younger listeners might not know this, but for a long, long time, well into Jesuit's teen years, the ultra-conservatives among the American evangelicals who now make common cause with Catholics in conservative U.S. politics, the parents of the same Christians who were overjoyed at a conservative-majority Supreme Court that includes six Catholics, were absolutely convinced that the Catholic Church was at the root of all spiritual evil in the world. No, it's true. Anti-Catholicism was a really important part of the most conservative John Bircher anti-communist, anti-immigrant part of the evangelical Christian movement, at least up to the 1990s. That's the moment when conservative Catholics started being accepted into the broader conservative fold. The original idea was that the Whore of Babylon and the Antichrist and all of that stuff that's talked about in the Book of Revelation is really about the Catholic Church, which perverted the original, pure, early church from the time of Christ turned it into a powerful tool of Satan, and ruled the Christian world until the real truth was rediscovered by true Christians in the wake of Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation. 
This idea is to this day popular in parts of the very rural U.S. South, where anti-Catholic Jack Chick tracts are an integral part of the decor of every Waffle House restroom. So the point is, supposedly former priest Alberto Rivera found an incredibly receptive audience in Jack Chick and his ministry, which to this day hasn't gotten the memo about Catholics being okay now. In the late 70s, Chick and Rivera began publishing comic books based on the former Jesuit's self-attested backstory of becoming a priest in order to suss out the horrible truths about the Catholic Church. Very similar to the tale of Dr. Bataille, isn't it? That's not the only similarity to Leo Taxel's ludicrous accusations about the Masons from a century before. Rivera's stories involved secret training facilities where dedicated Catholic agents would pose as attractive young evangelicals only to infiltrate God's true church and pervert it from within, seducing righteously anti-Catholic pastors to the satanic practice of ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism, a popular pan-denominational movement in certain Christian circles in the 70s, men playing nice with other Christian denominations, instead of declaring that everyone who's not in your slice of Christianity is on a one-way trip to hell. Turns out, that's just playing into the devil's hands. But the best part of the first Alberto comic is when you find out that the top levels of Jesuit leadership in the church are all secretly Masons. Naturally, all of this confused the young Alberto Rivera, who as a good Catholic had been taught to hate and fear the Masons church policy since the formation of the craft. He insists at this point that I remind you of Jesuits' maxim of conspiracy underpinnings, trademark pending, and that once again, it's been proven. Alberto's discoveries about the satanic underpinnings of the church led him to speak out against it, resulting in his capture and extensive torture by the church higher-ups who couldn't have his insider information about their depravities getting out to the public. Again, this is Rivera's version of events. We'll get to questions of their veracity in a moment. But at the last minute, Rivera turns his soul over to Protestant Jesus, who instantly heals him and empowers him to remove himself from an iron lung with no assistance, which we're pretty sure is... unlikely. Anyway, he escapes, rescues his nun sister from a convent, survives Jesuit assassination attempts, including with nerve gas, and reveals all kinds of other secrets, like that nuns and priests have orgies that result in pregnancies, and then the nuns sacrifice the babies to the Virgin Mary and bury their bodies in mass graves. Obviously. And President Lincoln was secretly assassinated by the Jesuits. No doubt. And the church was behind the Jonestown Massacre. Sure. Why not? Oh, and they created Islam. Oh, come the fuck on. Yeah. In issue three of the Alberto series, you find out that the church needed to motivate 7th century Arabs to kick out Jews and true non-Catholic Christians in the Holy Land so that the Pope and his demonic Catholic hordes could control Jerusalem. So they created an Arab messiah, namely Mohammed, to do their dirty work. Funny that this world-shattering expose of interfaith historical revisionism appeared not in scholarly publications, but in a comic book. Isn't it? You would think Rivera's revelation that the Vatican secretly started World Wars I and II as part of their long-term strategy to punish the Jews for keeping the Pope from controlling Jerusalem 1400 years earlier would have made headlines too. Oh, and the Jesuits also masterminded the Russian Revolution. I'm going to hypothesize that these allegations aren't backed up by a mountain of incontrovertible evidence. I mean, no, in the sense that there's no evidence at all. And also, way back in 1981, two different American Christian evangelical publications ran exposés of the many, many, many questionable claims Rivera had made about his background, experiences, etc. Wait, 
even other evangelical Christians didn't buy it. So who the fuck would believe this? First, it's still not dumber than QAnon, and we know plenty of people believe that shit. Second, Chick Publications conveniently wrote out an FAQ addressing the haters who didn't buy this story, which we'll quote here, responding to the allegation that Rivera's conspiracy theory is extreme and paranoid. Dana, do the honors. Quote, There are only two ways that history can be explained. The accidental theory and the conspiratorial theory. Okay, we might be able to quibble with the completeness of those two options, but that's surprisingly accurate, in the sense that the accidental theory is the only one that makes sense and fits the data. How do they go on to describe the accidental theory? All events, such as world depressions, revolutions, wars, and political plots are the results of pure chance? Such a view is as ridiculous as belief in evolution. My God, they just don't make them like the dearly departed Jack Chick anymore. Pour one out, Straniacs. We're going to leave this story at this point, because on some future episode, we're going to dive deep into the full, completely amazing world of Jack Chick's unique conspiracy orama But we wanted to point out the irony that Rivera, Chick, and those who like them see the evil hand of the church behind all terrible world events kind of cribbed their own paranoid playbook from the church itself, thanks to its centuries-long policy of believing and disseminating ridiculous anti-Masonic allegations like those of Barrowell and Taxel. Very long digression. Over. Phew. Where were we? Oh yeah, there's one more little point we wanted to make about the legacy of Leo Taxel and how his Baroque pastiche of lies impacted the historical legacy of someone we discussed previously. Many of the elements of Leo Taxel's cynical fantasies actually survive to this day in conspiracy thinking. Do you remember I mentioned Albert Pike, the sort of white supremacist guru of the Scottish right? Taxel said, ah, yes, the real head of the demonic anti-church that is Freemasonry. If you like, the demonic equivalent of the Pope is Albert Pike. He is the real bad guy. He is the devil worshipper in chief. And he made Charleston the world HQ of demonic Freemasonry. He'd made it up. But of course, if you look up Albert Pike these days, you will see lots of conspiracy theories saying, aha, he was a devil worshipper. Look at this, look at that. Just recently, during the Black Lives Matter protest, his statue in Washington, D.C. was one of the ones torn down. He was the only Confederate general with a public statue in the nation's capital. And it was torn down, even though he was there because of his contribution to Freemasonry rather than because of his distinctly unimpressive record as a military man. But when it was torn down, look at the Twitter discussion about that. There's a lot of people saying, ah, good riddance, because he was a devil worshipper. That Taxel story, insane as it sounds and comic as it sounds, belongs, of course, in that climate of culture war in the 19th century. Elements of it still live on today amid our own culture wars. At this point, we've said nearly everything we want to say about Freemasonry's history, both real and imagined. But there's one more time period in Europe that we really have to discuss if we're going to try to give you the full picture of the way that Masons view themselves. And that's the story of Masonic repression by the 20th century's totalitarian states. Unfortunately for that century, that description doesn't really narrow things down much. The term totalitarian could probably be applied to societies as diversely terrible as Kim Il-sung's North Korea and the Taliban's on-again, off-again Afghani theocracy. Which is apparently on-again now. 
Reminding us of a Dennis Miller joke about the reunification of Germany from back when he was funny. I view the reunification of Germany in much the same way I view a possible Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis reconciliation. I haven't really enjoyed any of their previous work, and I'm not sure I need to see the new shit right now. Right. And it's definitely true that many of those governments have officially anathematized Freemasonry, including the Soviet Union, where it was seen as a bourgeois tool of oppression or some such. And it's also true, as John Dickey pointed out to us, that there are no Masonic lodges in the largely autocratic modern Middle East. Like, not one. And yet, in spite of that, the Masons continue to be a frequent target of conspiracy thinking. Just like you don't have to know any black people or live near any black people to be a racist, you don't have to know any Freemasons or have any Freemasonry in your country to be paranoid about the Freemasons. You know, that's why Hamas subscribes to the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory and bans Freemasons in its territory when there weren't any Freemasons there anyway. They're still very good fodder for a conspiracy theory in various parts of the world. So we're not casting a net that embraces all of the shitty governance options humanity considered last century, but rather we're focusing on three specific yet linked situations, the distinct yet similar fascisms that gripped Italy, Germany, and Spain. We're almost certain that this is the first story you've heard about the mid-20th century in which the Germans aren't the main bad guys. But it's true. Hitler and his evil conspiracist underlings were definitely anti-Mason. But in this case, they're not even close to taking the crown. They're the second-placed finishers for a really shitty reason, so don't worry, they're still the biggest assholes ever. It's just this is, as you would expect at this point in learning about the Masons, a weird story. Let's start with Italy. Don't know about you, but even after a thorough marinating in World War II history as an undergraduate, and then still more post-graduation voluntary immersion, which, as an aging white man, is his most important inheritance from his forebears, I still don't have more than a high-points understanding of the history of Italian fascism. To wit, Mussolini carves out a path for other paranoid megalomaniac dipshits to follow way back in the 1920s, takes power in Italy with slogans emphasizing the country's greatness and assuring citizens that he will restore the glory of Rome, murders communists and other political enemies, makes the trains run on time, invades and conquers Ethiopia on some bullshit trumped-up justification, joins the Axis, deports Jews to death camps, does a bunch of sloppy seconds invasions of places the Germans already blitzkrieged, gets his ass handed to him by the Brits in Africa, is turned into a Hitler puppet by 43, and in his attempt to escape as the Allies take Rome in 45, gets removed from office with extreme prejudice by his own countrymen. And then his buddy is hung shirtless from a girder so that the Italians can take a turn beating the shit out of his corpse with hammers. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Exactly. Anyway, like other fascists, Mussolini didn't care for the Masons. Again, quoting the craft. The Masons embodied everything that he was intent on sweeping away as he created his dictatorship. Most of the opposition had abandoned Parliament in protest the previous summer. In their absence, they were now made to look crooked, pettifogging and sneaky. In a word, Masonic. Hitting the craft also threw a bone to fascist squads. These were thuggish paramilitary gangs who had cudgeled opposition of all kinds in the fields and piazzas. For them, the prospect of ransacking Masonic lodge buildings and beating up brethren was lip-smacking. As we probably should expect by now, going anti-Masonic also endeared Il Duce to the most conservative elements in Italy's Catholic Church. Mussolini and his fascists were again promulgating their anti-Masonic laws and beating up suspected Masons way back in the 1920s. As Dickey notes, the key vote on an anti-Masonic statute in the Italian Parliament was held way back in 1925, 
far enough before the global rise of fascism that Mussolini was still having to let the communists have their say in the Italian parliament. Which, as we noted in passing with the Soviet Union, didn't help the Masons any. As the communists considered Freemasonry a bourgeois affectation, the sooner done away with, the better. I hope that we've made it clear that the historical record of Masonry is quite mixed, but this seems to be a big mark in its favor. If you piss off both fascists and communists, the odds are you're doing something right. But in the end, Mussolini's play-acting fight against the Freemasons was mostly for show. Dickey quotes one Italian senator who, at the time, pointed out that the law against Freemasonry was, in practice, a means of eliminating the right of all citizens to form groups of any kind, under the ostensible goal of suppressing a Masonry that was, in the Italy of the time, barely a thing. When the debate in the Senate finally came a few days later, there were still a few voices prepared to raise doubts. One senator complained that the grandiose and imposing building, known as Freedom of Association, has been burned down just to roast the bedraggled chicken that is Freemasonry. Needless to say, the Senate voted the bill into law by a huge majority. Before the law came into force, the bedraggled chicken had already bowed to the inevitable and begun dissolving itself. Which is not super surprising, because, duh, fascism. Moving on to the man whose mustache makes it look like his nose shit itself. That's the third time you used that joke. Over five years, unicorn. I want my props. Anyway, Hitler didn't care for masonry. Like, not at all mostly because it was talked about in his favorite book of all time, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Freemasonry was mentioned at various points in the protocols, like the press, international finance, socialism, and pretty much everything else. The craft was portrayed as a tool of the great and despicable Jewish stratagem. We shall create and multiply Freemasonic lodges in all the countries of the world, absorb into them all who may become or who are prominent in public activity, for in these lodges we shall find our principal intelligence office and means of influence. Considering our second-ever episode was entirely devoted to this hideous blood-soaked forgery, we're not going into detail about it again, except to say that in keeping with Der Fuhrer we know and loathe, his anti-Masonry was, like the Protocols, subsumed beneath his conviction that the Jews were the real power, while everyone else, including the Freemasons, were simply puppets. Hitler, it should be said, was a believer in the Masonic conspiracy theory. He saw the Masonic lodges as servants of international Judaism. In 1935, long after doing away with lots of other enemies, like jazz musicians and birth control clinics and so on, the Nazis finally abolished Freemasonry. Even those Freemasons who said, we're not Freemasons anymore, we're not at all Jewish, we've got rid of all the Jewish elements, we're a Teutonic anti-Semitic brotherhood. No, you said, sorry, that's just a Masonic trick, you're banned. But Hitler did not then go on and persecute individual people who'd been Freemasons. There were Freemasons who were tortured to death, who died in death camps, who went to the gas chambers. But the reason they did is overwhelmingly because they were either political dissidents or because they were Jews. And that's the reason why they were killed. He devoted himself to drafting Mein Kampf, the memoir manifesto that gave definitive shape to his worldview. The book showed him to be a fervent believer in the idea of a Judeo-Masonic conspiracy. The Jews, Hitler asserted, wanted to tear down racial and civil barriers, and so fought for religious tolerance. In Freemasonry, they found an excellent instrument for this purpose. The governing circles and the higher strata of the political and economic bourgeoisie are brought into the Jews' nets by the strings of Freemasonry and never need to suspect what is happening. So for Hitler, 
Masonry was an underhand instrument of the Jew, a means to spread liberalism, pacifism, and Jewish material interests. So for Hitler, Masonry was definitely a problem, but it was a second-order problem, always subordinated to the driving mania of his life, the so-called Jewish question. Dickey traces Hitler's Masonic thinking to that same post-French Revolution mania that Baruel stirred up in the first place, largely because it was totally unfalsifiable. Anti-Masonry had proved so addictive a mindset since the French Revolution, partly because it contained ready-made counter-arguments to any objections. Good Masons could be dismissed as dupes, caught up in a facade erected by Grand Masters to hide their sinister plans. The repeated failure to discover nasty secrets in the lodges did not matter, because the real danger lay in the hidden lodges. Somehow, the true face of this evil never quite came into focus. The Masons seemed all the more cunning and pervasive as a result. But where Mussolini saw anti-Masonic posturing as a sop for his allies in the Catholic Church and the most violent thugs in his movement, Hitler saw the nebulousness of the cause as a distraction from the quote-unquote real threat. He needed to focus on making every German shit-scared of every Jewish person on Earth for no good reason whatsoever, which was a big enough hill to climb without getting bogged down in the murky confusion of how exactly Masonry was a menace to the pure German Volk. As Dickey notes, quote, He hated Masonry, but to let any attack on it clutter the call for a war on Jews would be to rob his ideology of its brutal simplicity. Thus Hitler the conman won out over Hitler the insane ideologue in this limited way. He used anti-Freemasonry as a tool that he would deploy only judiciously, as a support to his anti-Semitism and anti-communism, but never as a primary goal. Please don't construe this to mean that it was an easy road being a Freemason in Nazi Germany. Dickey documents the gradual dismantling of the craft throughout the Reich, including specific nauseating details like the fact that the former Hamburg Grand Lodge, long after it was rifled through by the SS in search of damning documents proving the Judeo-Masonic conspiracy, was used in 1941 as an assembly point for the deportation of the city's Jews to the ghetto in Lodz, Poland. Including the nauseating detail that it was apparently chosen because it was close to the cattle station, and therefore the livestock cars that would be used to move these doomed people out of the fatherland. Boy, talking about the Nazis never gets less disgusting, does it? But keeping our eyes on the ball, here's the point where we have to call into question a version of history that some Masons have eagerly embraced. Freemasons love to tell the story of their own repression. And there's no doubt that they were repressed by the 20th century dictatorships. Freemasonry even today is banned in China and almost all Muslim countries and so on and so forth. But because the Nazis are the great bad guys of world history, the Freemasons rather cherish the idea of their having been repressed by the Nazis because it allows them to align themselves with the victims of world history. They were also repressed in other authoritarian regimes in the 20th century, but the most obvious instances are Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and nationalist Spain. And Freemasons love to conjure up this image, if you like, of emaciated Freemasons in concentration camps. The real story is actually rather messier and not remotely as flattering to Freemasons as that narrative of victimhood. For a start, the most powerful traditions of Freemasonry in Germany were avowedly anti-Semitic and wouldn't have Jewish members. And that's going right back deep into the 19th century. 
before Nazism was very powerful, they were expressing anti-Semitic values. They were hubs of anti-Semitic values and very quickly tried to embrace Nazism and align themselves with Nazism and purify themselves of Old Testament elements. All the Temple of Solomon, all of that had to go because it was suspiciously Jewish. Let's dive a little deeper into the weird relationship between Mason's conception of their persecution and the much muddier reality that Dickey just alluded to. First of all, let's talk numbers. The Freemasons claim that as many as 200,000 of their brothers were exterminated by the Nazis, which of course would make it sound as if Freemasons were one of the groups that were rounded up, tortured, and murdered for this identity, in the same way that Jews, gypsies, gay people, and others were liquidated in their millions for the crime of being undesirable to the Thousand-Year Reich. But the real story, as Dickey explains in his book, is that the vast preponderance of Masons murdered by the Nazis were killed because of other identities they held, most often the fact that they were Jewish or leftists, or fell into other unacceptable classifications. Take, for example, the horrifying treatment of one Karl von Ossietzky, a prominent critic of Nazism, who was picked up in 1935, horrifically beaten, starved, overworked in prison camps, and finally succumbed in 1938. He was indeed a Mason, but that fact was purely incidental to his fate. Not that this stopped modern Freemasons from counting him among the death toll they consider specifically related to the victim's Masonic affiliation. So, what can we conclude about the Masons' fate under Hitler? Well, their lodges were definitely shut down, and their rituals' extremely biblical Jewish content, that is, all of the King Solomon, Hiram Abiff stuff, certainly made them suspect. But there's no evidence that the Nazis ever arrested or murdered Masons en masse for the crime of being Masons. It is the fate of Freemasonry at the hands of fascism, Nazism, that has since become integral to the Brotherhood's collective memory. Today, when faced with suspicion, as they so often are, Freemasons draw inspiration from the oppressed brothers of the fascist generation. For that reason, the closure of Hamburg Grand Lodge in 1935 by the Gestapo occupies a special place in many a Masonic history book. Masons tell the story as a cameo of the craft's integrity in the face of the worst adversity, as a demonstration of how Freemasonry and fascism stand at opposing moral poles. The Masons claim many martyrs to mourn, particularly of Nazism, as many as 200,000 according to some estimates. Freemasons were arrested, imprisoned, and exterminated, one recent guide to masonry states. Assertions like this inevitably evoke images of the Nazi death camps and their skeletal Jewish victims. How many Freemasons died under the Nazi regime? The research has yet to be done, but it seems very, very unlikely that the total of Masons murdered reached as many as 200,000. That would represent a staggeringly high percentage of the total number of Masons in countries occupied by German forces in the Second World War. What is certain is that the vast majority of those who did die were not killed because they were Masons, but above all because they were Jews. Austria, which became part of the Third Reich in the Anschluss of March 1938, is probably typical. When Nazi forces marched in, there were 800 Masons in Austria. Left behind in the lodges when the Nazis arrived in 1938 were many Jews, two-thirds of that total of 800. Although the Nazi state in Germany crushed Freemasonry, it did not persecute individual Freemasons with remotely the same lethal fanaticism as it did other groups. Mein Kampf, after all, had given non-Jewish craftsmen an escape clause. Hitler's memoir had said that ordinary Masons never needed to suspect that the Jews were really in charge behind the scenes. So in the overwhelming majority of cases, it was enough for a brother to recant for him to dodge the jackboot in the concentration camp. So, if the numbers are so much lower than the official Masonic estimates, 
and nearly all of those cases involved victims persecuted for something other than their Masonic affiliation. Why are modern Masons still clinging to this narrative? The reasons why Masons have exaggerated what they endured at Hitler's hands are not hard to discern. The Nazis are Hollywood's favourite bad guys. Contrasted against the pitch-black evil that they represent, the Masonic tradition seems to shine more nobly. That's pretty gross, bandwagoning on the suffering of more victimized groups. It is indeed, but there was an actual, honest-to-God, shining example of German Masonic heroism in the face of Hitler's goons. The symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany, formed in 1930 expressly to oppose the anti-Semitic turn in Freemasonry as Nazism's influence grew, was headed by a lawyer named Leopold Muffelman, who had the balls to keep criticizing Hitler after he took power. Seeing the writing on the wall, Muffelman and his brothers made plans to relocate to Jerusalem, but he was betrayed by an informer and arrested in 1933. Forced into hard labor, his existing heart condition killed him by the middle of the next year. A hero, for sure. But the problem for the Masons here is that Muffelman and his group never numbered more than 2,000 brothers at their peak, and they weren't even recognized by the other German Masonic lodges, specifically because they refused to exclude Jewish brothers. Thus, quote, As one historian has pointed out, it is misleading of the Freemasons to treat the symbolic Grand Lodge of Germany as a poster child of Masonic victimization and courageous resistance. It's also particularly weird that the Masons insist on this easily falsifiable narrative of heroic resistance to the Nazis when there is a real, no-shit, horrifying story of persecution of Freemasons by fascists. It's just not the one that happened in Hitler's Reich. Generalissimo Francisco Franco, though he did not plunge Spain into the turmoil of World War II, was unquestionably part of the same wave of populist fascism that brought Mussolini and Hitler to power in their respective countries. One of the things that made Franco unique was his tight alignment with the Catholic power structure in Spain. Both Hitler and Mussolini, who were also Catholics, made mutually beneficial political alliances with the sympathetic Catholic power structures of their nations as well. True, but Franco's Spanish flavor of fascism had a uniquely Catholic bent to it, which is probably one of the reasons that it was, truly, a terrifying time and place to be a Freemason. For example, that speech we just excerpted was the last one Franco gave in 1975, less than two months before his death, after he had ruled Spain for 36 years, the whole time relentlessly persecuting a largely imaginary Freemason opposition. And what did he rail against in that last speech, the one we just quoted? He went to his deathbed raving about the Masons and their war on Spain. His very last speech given in public just before he collapsed and died in 1975 raved about the Freemasons and their attempt to undermine Spain. The violence and paranoia of the Masonic persecution in Spain was far, far more serious in Spain and far more lasting than it was even in Nazi Germany. How bad could it possibly have been? Well, the mass murder of Freemasons began within days of the start of the Spanish Civil War. In September 1936, the Army of Africa was rewarded for its successes when its commander, General Francisco Franco, assumed supreme military and political leadership of the rebellion. 
He would soon adopt the title of Caudillo, the Spanish equivalent of Duce or Führer. In nationalist Spain, the army and right-wing vigilantes imposed a reign of terror. The intention was loudly proclaimed to cleanse the fatherland of its political and cultural pollutants. Anyone associated with the Republic and its institutions, with the political left, and even with secular modernity, was liable to be arrested, tortured, and executed. Trade unionists and politicians, workers and peasants, liberals and intellectuals, emancipated women and homosexuals. Tens of thousands died. Among them were many Freemasons. Most of the Masonic victims were killed in the early months of the Civil War, when the violence was not centrally orchestrated, and left little paperwork behind for historians to work on. While the majority of Freemasons killed by the Nationalist forces were, as the book notes, murdered within months, the Franco regime's obsession with Masonic intrigues and their supposed threat to Spain would, as Dickey just noted, continue unabated for the subsequent 40 years, until the Caudillo's untimely death. Untimely? This piece of shit was 82. Yeah, it would have been a lot better if he had died decades before. He lived, like, 36 years too long. His death, therefore, was untimely. You need to work on your verbal comprehension skills, Dana. If you really want a story of political persecution of Freemasonry, the price that Masonic history has paid, if you like, for this fetishization of the Nazi baddies and wanting to be victims of the Nazi baddies, is that it's neglected what happened to the Freemasons in Spain. It's an astonishing story. General Franco was a completely paranoid anti-Freemason to his dying day. Atrocities deliberately targeting Freemasons started as soon as the Spanish Civil War began. After winning the war, he set up this special tribunal to persecute Freemasons with a minimum jail term of 12 years and a day. Franco, as Dickey notes, was a paranoiac of the purest race serene, perhaps even more so than Hitler. But the Generalissimo's obsession was focused specifically on his perceived Masonic enemies. They, for Franco, held the same boogeyman position in his insane worldview that the Jews did for Hitler. Masonry was a slippery beast. The men around Franco seemed to have viewed their struggle to pin it down as a heroic labor, much trickier than the Nazi war against Jews. Mauricio Calavia, a specialist anti-Masonic investigator, remarked in 1945, Lucky Hitler, when it comes to granting or denying anyone nationality, he can be guided by the sign of a hooked nose or a Talmudic rite. Poor us. To deny anyone nationality, we have to rely on less pronounced indicators, a Masonic confession, which is never really confessed. The more meticulous was the special tribunal's work of repression, the more terrifying the specter of Masonic conspiracy grew. When Harry S. Truman, a well-known Freemason, became President of the United States in 1945, the Cardillo interpreted this development as a significant advance towards Freemasonry's goal of fusion within the presidency of the United States of supreme executive power and the supreme Masonic powers. Writing under a pseudonym in 1951, Franco implied that there could be no victory over Freemasonry this side of the Day of Judgment. Daughter of evil, its demonic spirit survives the defeat and comes to life in new beings. In spite of their mewling complaints about the impossible complexity of their task, Franco's apparatchiks went about it with gusto, leading to a level of violent persecution that is difficult to account for even today. The most brutal persecution took place on the coast of Valencia and Alicante. When the war ended in Spain, the military barracks remained. 
It was here that soldiers practiced shooting. It was a shooting gallery, and someone came up with the idea of using it as a killing machine. 2,238 people have been murdered here since 1939. For the traditional Spanish right, Freemasons were considered worse enemies than the communists and socialists. Because the church was, well, and still is, very powerful in Spain. And Freemasonry is considered by the church as its personal enemy. The problem is that in the case of Freemasons, we don't even have their names. No records were kept. So it's impossible to determine whether 2,000 or 4,000 Masons were killed. Franco's anti-Masonic obsession left not only a history of persecution, but also a grotesque warping of the very fascist bureaucracy he controlled, all with an aim toward stamping out a Masonic anti-Spanish conspiracy that not only couldn't be shown to ever have existed in the first place, but that by a few years into his dictatorship would have been demonstrably impossible to keep up. You can still visit, I visited the card index file of Freemasons that was collected over the coming 20, 25 years. And just to give you an idea of the paranoia, is that there are about 80,000 names listed on that as Freemasons to be hunted down, to be persecuted, to be put on trial. The number of Freemasons at the end of the Spanish Civil War, number in Spain, because lots had fled, a lot had been killed. The number left is very, very difficult to estimate but it may be only about 500, 1,000. And yet you have 80,000 people listed in there as Freemasons, as agents of the Masons. And things like the Rotary Club and so on were treated as if they were front organisations for the Masons. And Franco was fed conspiracy theory nonsense by some of his secret agents pointed around the world who were feeding him for a long time what he thought was privileged inside information. But of course, it was nonsense. It was like Leo Taxel's revelations about the international Masonic conspiracy against Spain. Dickey mentions here that he had visited Salamanca and seen the funhouse mirror version of a Masonic lodge that the fascist government had installed there as a sort of horrific warning about the terrors of masonry, designed to make Spaniards shudder at the evil their country would have been exposed to, save for the good offices of the Generalissimo. The book goes into more detail. The Salamanca Lodge is the last surviving example of its kind in Europe. It was built as propaganda by the Francoist authorities in the 1940s. Everything in it is a genuine artifact confiscated during police raids on lodges. Franco's men took bits and pieces from their hoard to create the spookiest ensemble they could. It is not very hard to make Freemasonry seem weird. The Nazis mounted similar shows in Germany and countries they occupied. Having closed the lodges, the SS put skeletons in some and invited the public in to take a look. Across fascist Europe, the message was that the nation's saviors had finally vanquished the Masonic menace exposing the craft secrets for all to ogle. Franco took this obsession so far as to have a Masonic temple built right inside his intelligence service. This representation of the Masonic temple is a thing of fantasy. It's designed to make a negative impression on visitors and the population. And with that, finally, we've said essentially all we have to say 
about the Masons. Which means we're on to the very last of our topics in this, the pre-1900s Secret Society series. There's definitely a 20th to 21st century version coming eventually. We're just not sure whether it's the next big topic in the lineup. I mean, we gotta do aliens, right? Future scheduling dilemmas aside, there's one group we absolutely can't leave this series without addressing. A society that has inspired truly bizarre conspiracy theories for two and a half centuries. The inner circle group that exists at the secret heart of many other conspiracist targets. Adam Weishaupt's brief but immortal creation. Holy shit, we're finally doing the Illuminati. A Jesuit friend you What's tough? Well, I mean, probably like childbirth or landing on the moon or brain surgery. But like, if you're a podcaster, you know what's tough? Trying to figure out the actual story of the Illuminati using only books written in English. Obviously, anyone with an internet connection can visit Wikipedia and get a pretty clear understanding of what the Illuminati actually were. And far be it from us to suggest we're too good for a Wikipedia quote. Historically, the name usually refers to the Bavarian Illuminati, an Enlightenment-era secret society founded on May 1, 1776, in Bavaria, today part of Germany. The society's goals were to oppose superstition, obscurantism, religious influence over public life, and abuses of state power. They were outlawed through edict by Charles Theodore, Elector of Bavaria, with the encouragement of the Catholic Church in 1784, 1785, 1787, and 1790. And then people made up conspiracies about them, suggesting they had not in fact dissolved. And by a couple of centuries later, many of those folks were convinced that the Illuminati now run the world from behind the scenes. But do they? They do not appear to, no. Excellent. Well, that's a wrap, everybody. Great job. We kid, we kid. But we do want to temper your expectations about how deeply we're going to go into the Illuminati story here. Given the three-plus hours of Masons, you might expect the Illuminati section to be just as grandiose, if not more so. After all, the Masons are an organization that, however much their detractors have alleged they've engaged in nefarious backroom machinations, they've largely operated in the open. The Illuminati, by contrast, was genuinely a secret society. That is, they operated essentially by invite only, as opposed to opening franchises in large buildings in every podunk town in the Midwest. Mason style. And remember how the Masons closely held secrets centered around the idea that, as John Dickey told us, death is a serious business? In other words, the secrets weren't exactly secret. The Illuminati had actual secrets. Secrets that the higher-ups deliberately disguised from the world at large, and also from their own members. They operated by infiltration and misdirection. So why, given all that, do you appear to be implying that you will have much less to say about them than about the Masons? Frankly, it's because I'm choosing between providing a manageable overview or dedicating the rest of the run of this podcast ad infinitum to examining every piece of conspiracy theorizing that has somehow been thought to be linked to the Illuminati. The Masons shows are pretty much everything we have to say about that group, though of course they will come up in the future as sidebars to our main topics. Our thorough discussion here means that we won't have to backfill the Masons' story piecemeal as we mention them in the future. 
The Illuminati, on the other hand, are woven into nearly every topic we have ever or will ever cover, and almost none of that has to do with the actual history of the group. We mean it. They can be linked to virtually any conspiracy theory. JFK? Some claim he was shot on the orders of the Illuminati. Space aliens? The Illuminati is in contact with them. Or the Illuminati are themselves space aliens. Or the Illuminati is faking UFOs to keep us from finding out about their other nefarious plans. Chemtrails? The Illuminati are behind it as a form of population control, or to dumb down the sheeple, or something. QAnon? The Illuminati are the ones conspiring against Trump. False flags? The Illuminati are faking all of these mass shooting events as an excuse to take away our Second Amendment freedoms. See? It's endless. The Illuminati are the one secret society that we can never say we're truly finished examining. So for the moment, we're going to try our best to separate out what is known of the actual history of the group from the later tide of hogwash, and then we'll dive into one small current of the ocean of Illuminati conspiracy theories and see how it's impacted the way some fans look at some of the biggest stars in the music world. Now, let's get down to historicizing, which is where we encounter our first problem. Way back in the mists of time, when we interviewed Professor Spence about secret societies, we asked him if he had any books he would recommend on the Illuminati. It turned out that it's pretty tough to find either popular or scholarly tomes concerned with the actual, real-life history of the group. Spence sympathized. In fact, the only book he could think of that would be useful for our purposes was The Perfectibilists by Terry Melanson. So, of course, we bought it and read it, and it indeed provided us with a solid background on Adam Weishaupt and his group. But it was still surprising to us that this, a book written by an amateur scholar, not to take anything away from Mr. Melanson's diligent work on this book, was the only significant treatise published in the last several decades on this topic. How could that possibly be, given the ubiquity of the Illuminati in conspiracy theory circles? I mean, it's not just weirdos like me who get into these topics. Sociologists, psychologists, and simply students of political and pop culture historical phenomena pay attention to conspiracy theories. And there are plenty of materials about the specter of the imaginary Illuminati that the paranoid see behind every corner. So how is it possible that nobody's writing scholarly work on the original Illuminati themselves, except again for Mr. Melanson? Oh, Jesuit, du armer, einsprachiger Kaud. Nur weil Bücher nicht auf Englisch veröffentlicht werden, bedeutet das nicht, dass die ganze Welt ein Thema ignoriert. Erforschung von Weishaupts Illuminaten wird im deutschsprachigen Raum seit mehr als einem Jahrhundert fortgesetzt, wobei wichtige Entdeckungen über die Mitgliedschaft, die Auswirkungen auf das europäische intellektuelle Leben, die Auflösung und den allhandenden Einfluss bis ins 19. Jahrhundert in der wissenschaftlichen und sogar populären Literatur erscheinen. Et pendant que je suis, des universitaires de langue française ont été tout aussi actifs. Retraçant la manière dont les idées illuministes ont réellement informé bon nombre de ceux qui ont aidé à diriger la Révolution française naissante, bien que d'une manière complètement différente et bien moindre que Parouel ou Robinson ne le laisse croire. Weirdly, in spite of the fact that I speak neither German nor French, I think I have some idea of what she was saying there. Wahrscheinlich, weil du es geschrieben hast, du nah. Which is that while English language scholarship on the topic has in fact been sorely wanting, German and French scholars have uncovered plenty about the Illuminati and their intellectual impact on the Europe of their time. In fact, while clearly Abbe Baruel and John Robeson's narratives of the Illuminati's and Freemasons' secret manipulation of the French Revolution for their own nefarious ends are in many ways total fantasies, 
recent scholarship has clearly indicated that some of those who had been active in the Bavarian group did have influence, either directly or indirectly, on the political thought of some revolutionary leaders. Melanson's book attempts to recapitulate this scholarship for an English-speaking audience, and Mr. Melanson himself was equally eager to help us in the interview he so kindly granted us a while back, which we'll dip into periodically as we proceed. Our story starts, as so many conspiracies do, with an angry young man. In this case, that's the now legendary Adam Weishaupt. Born in 1748, his father would kick the bucket five years later. At the ripe old age of 36. And young Adam. And presumably Adam's mother. Yeah, probably, but she's hardly mentioned. Historians aren't super concerned with the ladies' unicorn. Naturally. Point being, young Weishaupt's tragic loss of his dad placed him in the hands of a super-progressive in mid-18th century terms authority figure in the person of Johann Adam Baron von Ickstadt, who, as Melanson notes, was a rector of the local university. That local university, which Weishaupt would eventually attend, was, as was normal in Bavaria at the time, run by that shadowy and often conspiracy-friendly sect of the Catholic clergy, the Jesuits. His father died when he was five years old, and his mother wasn't around. His godfather took care of him afterwards. So from five years old until he went to university when he was in the early 20s, he had full reign of his godfather's gigantic library at the time. It was like 4,000 books of Enlightenment philosophy and criticism of the church. The Enlightenment books that were banned because his Jesuits didn't want to teach it to their students. He rebelled against the Jesuits' rigorous orthodoxy and relentless opposition to ideas that would contradict the authority of the church. Young Weishaupt, with what appears to have been a Holden Caulfield-esque nose for bullshit coming from the authority figures whose thumbs he found himself under, began bucking the rigorous and... what's the term? Uh, Jesuitical? Yeah, that's it. He rebelled against the Jesuits' rigorous orthodoxy and relentless opposition to ideas that would contradict the authority of the church, while at the same time embracing their intellectual defense of nefarious tactics in the name of establishing God's kingdom on earth. However, for the young Weishaupt, the aim was not a theocratic utopia, but rather a future society of tolerance and peace based on Enlightenment rationality. As Spence notes, Weishaupt's utopian vision of Illuminism, down to the need for secrecy and manipulation in pursuing it, is a clear reflection of later communist idealism and tactics. Don't jump ahead, Dana. There's plenty of 18th century before we get to the Marx connection. As Terry Melanson explained to us, young Weishaupt, in his rebellion against the Jesuit order, took heart in 1773, when the then-pope officially dissolved said order, vacating the previously Jesuit-held chair of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt, where he had eventually graduated and was by now a lecturer. The chair had been held by a Jesuit for nine decades, but now was open to an iconoclastic smarty-pants son of the Enlightenment. But of course, as we'll see with Weishaupt's own group in the coming decades, official dissolution still leaves a bunch of sympathetic loyalists eager to keep conspiring. Though they were, as it turns out, temporarily dissolved, pro-Jesuit forces immediately began acting against Weishaupt's nomination, gathering prominent allies within the school's hierarchy. The war over the liberal Weishaupt's assumption of this position continued for years, 
and as Melanson notes, even led to the young professor's salary being withheld for a time. The Jesuits weren't the only enemy, though. The Rosicrucians, like Dracula in the Castlevania video game series, were still a threat. Wait, you spent a couple of hours assuring us that the Rosicrucians were more a pamphlet and a series of youthful aspirations than an actual secret society. Yeah, that was certainly true during their founding period in the early 1600s. But by the 1750s, Bavaria hosted one of a wide variety of Rosicrucian organizations that were loosely based on the legends attending the original group. Think of them as Christian Rosenkreutz cosplay, combined with the 1700s version of the Proud Boys, and you'd be most of the way there. The Bavarian Rosicrucians were an avowedly anti-Enlightenment, pro-Catholic, Jesuit-friendly secret society bent on opposing all of those who questioned the Mother Church. The Rosicrucians back in Weishaupt's day were a newly formed organization started in about 1750. They were aligned with the Jesuits. They were reactionaries. They wanted to keep the old regime and Catholic religion. They hated the Enlightenment. They hated the way the Enlightenment professors were teaching the students. The Rosicrucians were infiltrating into the universities, and they were trying to go after the same people that Weishaupt was. He said, I'm going to make my own secret society. He took four of his students and formed the secret society on May 1st. He called the Perfectibilis. And he wasn't sure really what that meant, but it's, you know, perfecting of humanity through reason and basically worship of reason. We wanted to fight fire with fire because secret societies were all the rage back then. His enemies firmly in his sights, by 1776, Weishaupt had decided on his course of action. He would form his own society based on Enlightenment principles and then use it to secretly infiltrate all levels of society, quietly influencing centers of power and decision makers to bring about the rational, egalitarian utopia of his dreams. And so, on May 1st of that year, Weishaupt founded the Order with four other members, each of whom received a codename. There was Weishaupt himself, a.k.a. Spartacus, Franz Anton von Massenhausen, Ajax, Max Edler von Mertz, Tiberius, a law student known only as Bauhoff, Agathon, and Andreas Sutor, Erasmus Rotterdamus. On May 1st, 1776, five men gathered around a table in Ingolstadt, Bavaria. Leading them was a local professor of canon law, the 28-year-old Adam Weishaupt. They gathered to inaugurate a new secret society, the Order of Perfectibilists. Its name soon changed to the Order of the Illuminati, or in German, the Illuminaten Orden. Its totem was the Owl of Minerva, or Athena, the ancient goddess of wisdom. Another symbol was a dot in a circle representing the all-seeing eye. Not the all-seeing eye of God, but of the mysterious, unknown superiors to whom the order answered. Indeed, the original name for the group was the Perfectibilists. Thus, the title of Mr. Melanson's book. But Weishaupt soon changed it to the more familiar Illuminati, or Enlightened Ones. The reason for the new name was clear. As Dr. Spence notes, the group was only one of a number of organizations that had taken the name, or a local variation, over hundreds of years, in each case imagining themselves as a select cadre seeking to bring the light of reason to humankind. The term Illuminati has been used many times before. In the classical age, any initiate of a mystery cult was considered an Illuminatus. The same was true for a Christian who'd undergone baptism. In essence, what Weishaupt envisioned was the realization of heaven on earth. A 5th century Persian prophet named Mazdak imagined something much the same. Another version is the millennial paradise that many believe Christ will usher in on his return, or the perfect kingdom Jews anticipate with the Messiah. And additionally, secret societies were all the rage. 
the social media or blockchain or NFTs of their day. The liberalizing trends in government in the preceding decades had carved out a space where at least some citizens could express themselves without immediately feeling the wrath of the powers that be. But on the other hand, from its very inception, Weishaupt established that his group's secrecy, unlike that of the Masons and other contemporaries, would be real, because they really had something to hide. For example, the group had no room for religious beliefs or patriotism, which, even in liberalizing regions, was not an acceptable perspective in 18th century Europe. And they were big on the ends justifying the means. As Dr. Spence notes, assassination, treason, murder, all of these things were okay as long as they were done in the pursuit of the bright future of human freedom that the Illuminati aimed for. Membership quickly expanded, and who were the enlightened ones attracted to Weishaupt's secret clandestine army of ruthless reason? Weishaupt focused on recruiting what today we'd call influencers or opinion shapers. Illuminati brethren also mostly represented the have-sums of Enlightenment society as opposed to the have-nots and the have-everythings. They have some and they wanted more. They embodied both ambition and resentment. The same sort can be found in the driver's seat of almost every revolution. Marx, Lenin, and Castro would have felt quite at home. The ultimate goal was to make men free and happy. But first, they had to be made good, and that required manipulation, trickery, even coercion. While the Illuminati would be the enlightened aristocracy of the New World Order, even they weren't equal or free. A recruit or novice was under the complete control of his recruiter or insinuator. Novices were told what to read, how to think, and they kept a daily account of their every thought and action. They had no secrets from their insinuator and obeyed every command without question. Noting that the games and abuses of secret societies were without end, he said, I wanted to make use of this human weakness for a real and worthy goal, the welfare of mankind. Simply put, Weishaupt saw that men desire status, and offering them access to secrets, real or imagined, was a way to manipulate them. As we noted before, the Illuminati was founded on secrecy, conspiracy, and manipulation. But the group was too small to be able to further Weishaupt's goals on its own. He needed to leverage an existing organization to bring his master plan to fruition. What better group of rubes to infiltrate than the already successful good old boys club of Freemasonry? After all, it was his disappointment at the fact that Freemasons were not serving as a revolutionary force and a real opposition to the reactionary Rosicrucians that inspired his creation of the Illuminati in the first place. John Dickey explains. One of the reasons Vsab founded the Illuminati is he thought Freemasonry was a bit rubbish. Wasn't really spreading Enlightenment ideas, was just a bit of a drinking club. He thought it hadn't done its job. And then he founded the Illuminati, but they weren't going anywhere at all. And he realized, you know what, we actually need those things that the Freemasons have got, all those intriguing rituals and the sense of a club and a belonging and the myths and so on and so forth. So what we're going to do is take over Masonic logics and build within them our structure of ever more secret compartments. And that's what allowed them to spread. Melanson concurs. One of his students had joined the Masons. He said, maybe I should join the Masons too. He joined the Masons in 1777. He was disillusioned with the Masons too, because they weren't trying to change society. It was just like a boys club sort of thing. So he decided to make his own rituals that harkened back to the old Greek mystery schools. And a lot of Gnostic influences were involved too. He was trying to do it in a manner that incorporated enlightenment values of expression 
Because Weishaupt had modeled his society not after the showy, meaningless secrets and rituals of the Masons, but rather the genuine cunning, obfuscations, intrigues, and effectiveness of his original enemies, the Jesuits, it was easy for the growing ranks of the Illuminati, numbering perhaps between two and 3,000 by the group's heyday in 1784, to infiltrate not just the Masons of Bavaria, but virtually all of the Masonic lodges of Central Europe, as Melanson carefully traces for us in his book, with the exception of France, about which more later. All the while, the Illuminati and the Rosicrucians were obsessed with spying on and casting aspersions on each other. It's kind of like a spy operation, and the Rosicrucians, in turn, were spying on them. They were trying to get the goods on each other, plus they were trying to indoctrinate their members. They were trying to get them to spy on their own family, make reports to the higher superiors. But then, fate seemed to turn against them. Weishaupt lost his position at the university, accused of securing ungodly books for the students. The local ruler started issuing edicts banning secret societies and their practices, specifically banning the Masons and Illuminati. Then a prominent Illuminist was literally struck dead by lightning, with sensitive documents and a goddamn membership list found sewn inside his clothes. Weishaupt had to go on the run, ending up in exile in the city of Gotha, which is pretty much the point where he passes out of the story of the Illuminati. In the hearts and minds of both detractors and admirers, Weishaupt of course remained, and remains to this day, pretty much the only person one thinks of when the real-life organization's name is mentioned. Naturally, this is where we get to the French Revolution and the Illuminati's supposed influence on it, as narrated by the work of Abbé Berruel, which we previously discussed when we tackled the supposed role of the Freemasons in that bloodbath. John Dickey here provides the mainstream view of why Berruel ended up aiming his poison pen even more at the Illuminati than he did the Masons, characterizing the latter as merely the dupes of the former. The Illuminati had a very short and, in a sense, slightly comical life in the late 18th century, in that most people who joined them saw them as a sort of glorified Enlightenment book club. And the people who regarded them as a sort of conspiracy to create a new utopian enlightened society really were making it up as they went along and had no actual plan for how this was going to happen. They had this model of sort of Russian dolls of secrecy. And at the outer layers, there were no secrets. You were just reading books and discussing stuff, you know, whereas in the kind of innermost layer, you would find actually our job is to create a new world. And it was a very seductive, model, a way to create an organization, keeping people on board with this eternal promise of more secrets and more revelations to follow. It collapsed because some of the people who were approached reported it to the authorities and the very conservative authorities in Catholic Bavaria, where the Illuminati grew up, abolished them. And they were a useful enemy for the Bavarian authorities who didn't like Enlightenment ideas and were suspicious of the Freemasons and thought, great, fantastic, we can sweep them away and they're a good excuse for a crackdown. But that apart, the Illuminati was a chapter that had kind of finished, if you like, when the French Revolution came around. And there were a few people who caught up on the idea later and thought, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll form a little Illuminati cell. Uh, It's quite a seductive idea, but it wasn't a coordinated. Whereas Baruel really latched onto this idea and thought that the Illuminati were the sort of great 
most refined version of the Masonic conspiracy. And of course, the beauty of the way that Illuminati Russian doll type structure, the way it works from the point of a paranoid conspiracy theorist, is that it makes your conspiracy theory completely impossible to disprove. If you say, well, you know, the Illuminati, they're just a glorified book club. You say, well, that's because you haven't dug deep enough. These people on the outside are just the dupes because behind them, there are more evil people. And behind them, there are more evil people. We just haven't quite discovered them yet. It creates this perfect, unfalsifiable myth about the conspiracy that is so cunning that we haven't quite exposed it properly yet. But it exists, so there's no question about it. So that's, I think, where the Illuminati ideal became so seductive and so powerful and have such a lasting influence for conspiracy theorists. One of the reasons Vsab founded the Illuminati is he thought Freemasonry was a bit rubbish wasn't really spreading Enlightenment ideas, it was just a bit of a drinking club. He thought it hadn't done its job. And then he founded the Illuminati, but they weren't going anywhere at all. And he realized, you know what, we actually need those things that the Freemasons have got, all those intriguing rituals and the sense of a club and a belonging and the myths and so on and so forth. So what we're going to do is take over Masonic logics and build within them are structure of ever more secret compartments, um, if you like. And that's what allowed them to spread. That synopsis is accurate, but as Melanson notes, there's a bit more to it. The real life of the Illuminati didn't have much impact because they were discovered before they had time to implement their actual plan. They had big aspirations to infiltrate the state, which they managed to do, right? But they didn't last long enough so that they could actually put their plans into operation. But they had big plans, and they did infiltrate the schools. They infiltrated the government. They stole official documents. They're passing them on. Spence reinforces that last point. As opposed to open proselytizing, mass movements, and direct confrontation, he advocated secrecy, or more to the point, conspiracy. The great strength of our order lies in its concealment, he decreed. Let it never appear in any place in its own name, but always covered by another name and another occupation. Melanson leverages verified sources to trace the activities of the man who took up the mantle of secret leadership of the group after Weishaupt's exile, Johann Joachim Christoph Bode, whose own diary offers solid evidence of the significant impact his 1787 journey to France had on the influential Freemasons he met there. Weishaupt was ousted by the second in command, Boda. He decided to go to see if he could recruit any members. So he came along. He missed the conference, but he ended up staying with the conference organizer, which his name was Savalette de Lange. He was the master of the Ami Reuni Lodge and was one of the most powerful lodges in Paris. And that lodge consisted of bankers, finance ministers, and you name it. If there was a revolution that was going to go on, it's got to be financed by somebody. He went there and he stayed for a couple months. He talked to him day after day. And he finally got him to not dispense with his cult beliefs totally, but he finally got him to sign oaths to the Illuminati. We can't call him Illuminati because the Illuminati is the devil nowadays. Everybody hates him. They decided to call it a different name. They called it the Philadelphs. He managed to recruit the five top members of that lodge. 
A lot of them played a role in the French Revolution. By 1792, there was about 70 members. And we're not sure who these members were. And so we really know what impact they had. But he did make headway in France. So, to review. While the Illuminati had indeed been dissolved in Bavaria, and it's also true that Abbe Beruel's suggestions regarding the role of the Masons and the Illuminati in the French Revolution were, in the words of Thomas Jefferson, Perfectly the ravings of a Bedlamite. It's also true there is a documented trail, including Boda's own diary, detailing his successful meetings with important Freemasonic lodges in France and his indoctrination of many free-thinking and powerful French movers and shakers into the philosophy of the Illuminati, albeit under a different name, the Philadelphs. It's fair to say that many of these men, given their important roles in society and their political leanings, would have been influential among pro-revolutionary thinkers when the revolution broke out. So you're saying that while Baruel is clearly off his rocker with his operatic and wildly overblown tales of specific, deliberate orchestration of the very chaotic French Revolution by the Illuminati, it's probably fair to say that Illuminati ideas, which were deliberately and specifically introduced into France by the then head of the order in exile, probably had some effect on the actions and ideology of some of those most prominent in these tumultuous events. Yeah, it appears that way. And if Melanson is right, the reason most English-speaking writers haven't addressed this evidence, which emerged way back in the 1990s, is mostly because English scholarship has fallen so far behind the European state of the art. Wow. Must be sad for anyone who only speaks one language. I can't imagine how limiting that would feel if, for example, I were trying to do a well-researched and intellectually rigorous podcast episode on this topic. Imagine! Yeah, yeah. Laugh it up, Miss Rosetta Stone. Unfortunately, she's right. I wish I could provide more context here, but I can't. Still, it sure seems like we in the English-speaking countries could use a modern, rigorous, formal, academic study of this topic. If only someone who, I don't know, speaks, for example, English, French, and German... Nope. Hold it right there. I read the lines, but I am not going to write an Illuminati book for you. Well, shit. Moving on, another interesting thread Melanson pursues in The Perfectibilists is the intellectual influence that Weishaupt, Boda, and company have had on later revolutionaries, including the aforementioned third president of these United States. I refer to Thomas Jefferson as a luminous at heart. What I meant by that is he didn't put them down like Washington did. He knew about the same philosophy. He read the same books, Rousseau, Montesquieu, Hobbes. And he knew there was a change going on. But he started from scratch. They had to destroy the old order to try to make the new order. That's why he had so much sympathy for him. But he said they couldn't operate here in America because there was no need for it. In fact, the Illuminati even tried to come to America, and they sent a letter to John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. And John Adams said, come on over. You, you can be free here. You can do whatever you want. As long as you go by the rules, you don't break any laws. Come here. We got all kinds of land. And they had that idea back in 1780. It never came to fruition. They really didn't have that much money. A lot of people think they were financed by Rothschild, but they weren't. Moving beyond the era of the French Revolution and the early days of the American Republic, the philosophy behind Weishaupt's Illuminati continued to influence new generations of European revolutionaries throughout the subsequent century, including the legendary and prolific Italian Philippe Buonarroti, who planted secret societies throughout Europe like an anti-authoritarian Johnny Appleseed. 
Bonarotti, he was born into a aristocratic family, an Enlightenment adherent. He decided that at the time, there was revolutions going on everywhere, and he, he wanted to make his own secret society. He gathered influences from all kinds of places. And you can really tell by the actual historians who went through his documents and the documents they confiscated, his major influence, he really liked the way that the Illuminati operated. He decided to make a society in the same purpose, but with revolutionary intent. And so he taught most of the same things that the Illuminati did. The authorities were always on to him somehow. So he had to go from secret society to secret society. But whenever he made one, he knew that he had to infiltrate masonry because that's the way they did it before. And he knew it worked. Plus, he was a Jesuit hater, too. So that's why he sympathized with the old Illuminati. For years and years, he was in the shadows. He made secret societies by himself. Everybody looked up to him, especially Karl Marx. All the revolutionaries of the 19th century, they looked up to him as like the grandfather of all the secret societies. Plus, he started calling his secret societies the Philadelphs, which is kind of funny because the Illuminati were called the Philadelphs. And he actually was friends with one of the Illuminati recruits. Rotier de Montalot, one of the original ones that Boda had recruited back in the French Revolution. So, the Illuminati had a significant real-world impact on revolutionary thinking in France and beyond, all the way up to Marx and the 19th century anarchists. And of course, the specter of the Illuminati's influence ended up gradually morphing perception of the group itself, thanks to the spread of Barrowell's grand conspiracy view of the French Revolution, into the unkillable satanic conspiracy behind every major event in the history of the world, right up to the present. For conspiracists, yes indeedy. But whatever happened to Weishaupt? He kept a low profile in his exile city of Gotha and lived to the ripe old age of 82, dying in 1830. Perhaps the weirdest fact is that the old Illuminist and scourge of the Vatican and all organized religion was raising funds for the local church building when he died. There we have an overview of the actual group that conspiracists may or may not know they're referring to when they talk about the all-powerful Illuminati, an influential but ultimately unsuccessful secret society that tried to foment a revolution of reason in the late 18th century and that influenced like-minded revolutionaries in the future. But that's not why people still talk about them, of course. No, the reason people still talk about them is that they're a convenient scapegoat for literally anything that a conspiracy-minded person might want to ascribe to the deliberate machinations of human beings, as opposed to the accidental happenstance of a complex and often inscrutable world. When I hear somebody mention the Illuminati and they're talking about Illuminati in modern days, I'd say what they're really trying to state is the elites in the background. They get all the money, they own all the corporations, they have influence inside government, and we all know they control a lot of what the politicians do because they give them money. This catch-all term for Illuminati really means the big bad guys in the background controlling the world. To a certain extent, they do, but there's not really any continuation from the original order. So it's not a term to take seriously. They should actually think about what they mean when they say the Illuminati. Talk to somebody who knows about it. Maybe I'll explain or somebody else will explain. 
Sure, there's elites here and there, and they've always been in control, but if you call them Illuminati, you're just muddying the waters. Certainly. When we ventured out beyond the safe harbor of Melanson's book and into the wild and untamed seas of Kindle Unlimited Illuminati conspiracy books, we quickly realized that no conspiracist author seems to mean the same thing as any other similar author when he or she talks about the Illuminati. For example, there are books purporting to help hopefuls figure out how to get in on the ground floor of this world-controlling behind-the-scenes conspiracy racket. For our purposes, we will discuss How to Join the Illuminati by John Bett, a sort of guide to convincing yourself that you're worthy to join an imaginary group of all-powerful manipulators. Without further editorializing, here are just a few of the book's helpful tips. Don't sell your soul. Why sell your soul? You have more bargaining power if you keep it and join the devil's ranks without compromising your integrity. No more praying to a higher power. Feel free to acknowledge that asshole if you must, but don't genuflect and certainly don't ask any favours of him. Next time you're looking up, give God that one-finger salute just to show him who's in charge here. Nobody respects a cuck. A loser. If you're content with things as they are, if you don't desire more power or control, then you need to take a long, hard look in the mirror. If any one book can be said to constitute an Illuminati Bible, it is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Read it. If you don't like it, who cares? It's a philosophical novel which demonstrates the morality of the Illuminati. Read all the conspiracies. Most of them are partially true, especially the ones you'll be inclined to disagree with the most. The easily believable ones are probably misinformation spread by other members of the Illuminati. You may find it helpful to binge-watch conspiracies on YouTube for hours at a time. If someone on the street told you that satellites don't really work so the governments have all been using blimps and spy planes in order to fool the gullible public, you might be inclined to reject the idea out of hand. The deeper you go down the rabbit hole, the less your view of reality will resemble the one you had before you started the journey. This is a personal journey and no two roads are alike. We are a nation of individuals and while we celebrate our uniqueness and are distinguished by our differences, we are unified by a common purpose and we are all headed in the same direction, towards the burning light of Lucifer. Ideal for that person in your life who's a perfect mix of total sociopathy and extreme gullibility. Yeah, we would send you to their website, Illuminati Nation, to learn more, but it is sadly defunct. As you can see from those excerpts, it's hard to tell whether the book is ascended master-level trolling, a cynical attempt to squeeze cash out of the deluded and narcissistic, or the sincere ruminations of a goddamned lunatic. But you can also see that, regardless, it's stuffed to the gills with delicious morsels of abject nonsense and is therefore an important part of a healthy, fearful Jesuit breakfast. As our representative example of the other major thread of general Illuminati conspiracy-mongering, we turn to the late, prolific Jim Mars, an independent journalist who was, until his death in 2017, one of the most reliable purveyors of conspiracist twaddle on every subject, from UFOs to JFK to why JFK was killed over his threat to reveal UFOs. Among Mr. Mars' many, many, many weighty tomes of loosely connected allegations and Baroque fantasies, all written in a plausible deniability style, with the craziest conjectures unconvincingly kept at a distance with phrases like many suggest and some say. He penned one called simply The Illuminati, and whereas Terry Mellinson's book works hard to hew to primary sources and carefully constructed arguments, Jim Mars doesn't do that. We will credit Mr. Mars with at least acknowledging the importance of Mellinson's book, The Perfectibilists, 
to historical knowledge of the group, if only all of his sources and allegations were so well supported. Mars lays out his bona fides early, jumping in with both feet on the conspiracy as opposed to coincidence theory of history, which we previously illustrated with the ravings of religious tract magnate Jack Chick. Mars defends his stance thus. History tends to support the conspiratorial view. One need only look at world and national events and place them into a historical context to see the telltale signs of conspiracy. A growing number now view human history as one long series of conspiracies. Accidents occur all the time, but if an action cannot be ascribed to an accident or an act of God, then someone planned it. It's a conspiracy. Not only is he conspiracy-friendly to an untoward degree, Mars is also one of those apparently non-racist loons who nonetheless simply can't let go of the protocols of the elders of Zion, as we can see in his uncomfortable effort to get the Hitler anti-Semitic stench off of said protocols so he can subsequently blame them instead on the Illuminists. Hitler sensed a real conspiracy, but in his belief system, this conspiracy stemmed from Jews. Some researchers believe there is evidence indicating that the protocols may have originally been an Illuminati document, only later fabricated as anti-Jewish propaganda. Okay, he's a nutter. We believe you. But what does he have to say about the Illuminati? Oh, Dana, what doesn't he have to say? He says there's evidence they plotted to kill Archduke Franz Ferdinand and kick off World War I. Well, not exactly. He instead quotes a Canadian naval commander named Carr. Mars always quotes someone else issuing the craziest shit he recapitulates, maintaining a quasi-air of distance and objectivity, even though the overall tone of his book is clearly in sympathy with all of the craziest allegations he can print. Allegations like? Well, an inordinate percentage of this book is devoted to convincing readers that the Illuminati are in some way connected to ancient aliens who ruled over ancient humans and from whom our ancestors learned of world-changing technologies that were lost in the ensuing rebellion against our sky daddies, only recently rediscovered by, for example, a cotton farmer in Arizona in the 1970s. Okay, I'm trying a new approach. Jeez, Jesuit, that's some surprising information. But I assume there's plenty of evidence to back up this unexpected and world-shaking series of allegations. No, Dana, there's no evidence at all. How, after years of doing this show, could you not know that? These guys never have any idea what they're saying. I could totally make up quotes from them and you would never know the difference. Ha! So I caught you. You made up this ancient aliens Illuminati technology thing. There is no way this shit made it into an actual published book. Ooh, sorry, I didn't make it up. Mars really suggested that. We've got some lovely parting gifts for you, though. To get us into the spirit, here's a big ol' Mars quote about some other researchers who are actually just spouting ancient alien lunacy. Others, such as authors Philip Gardner and Gary Osborne, in their well-researched book, The Shining Ones, state that these enlightened beings might have alternatively come from inner Earth, or from some earlier destroyed civilization akin to fabled Atlantis. The tradition of gods who acted in very human ways. They envied and hated each other, schemed against their relatives, even fought wars among themselves, using humans as pawns, has been carried down through the religions of the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans. Gardner and Osborne attempted to determine if secret societies, such as the Illuminati, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, Knights Templar, Knights of Malta, Opus Dei, and others, revolved around the same center. They concluded they do. It's good to know the Illuminati weren't necessarily ancient aliens. 
these authors generously allowed that they might come from an imaginary hollow earth or an imaginary drowned hyper-advanced civilization. All very convincing. But, as we suggested a few moments ago, Mars jumps immediately from his at-best vaguely Illuminati-referencing ancient alien shtick to suddenly talk about this. The accidental discovery of single-atom elements by a Phoenix-area cotton farmer in the 1970s may have actually been a rediscovery of technology in use by the ancient astronauts. This involves the manipulation of energy at the atomic level, and may have opened the door to limitless free energy, cures for AIDS and cancer, longevity, faster-than-light speeds, anti-gravity, and much more, perhaps even interdimensional and time travel. This discovery may have precipitated new governmental policies and even war in the struggle to gain control over this new technology. So in his book about the Illuminati, he kicks off with ancient aliens and then moves on to some pseudoscientific discovery about monatomic gold. How does any of this connect to Weishaupt and company? Well, it doesn't. Or it might. If you ask Jim Mars. See, Mars has gone whole hog on the idea of the Illuminati being behind everything. And if they're behind everything, then there's no digressive topic he can't squeeze into his narrative. Does he end up elaborating on the importance of this cotton farmer guy? Not really, except to note in passing that the man disappeared from view about 18 years ago after issuing some very strong promises. By 2004, David Hudson had dropped from sight after promising audiences that he intended to manufacture his monatomic white powder for the benefit of all humanity. His disappearance from the public scene engendered much speculation. Had he just been a hoaxer who slinked back into the shadows before he was exposed? Or had the people who so profited from medical treatments and pharmaceuticals, and who had so much to lose due to his discovery, found a way to neutralize him? Or had he taken some of the amazing gold powder himself and shifted to another dimension? I'm going to go with option A. Me too. Anyway, Mars eventually drops this topic and moves on to other stupidity though he manages in passing to suggest that the looting of the Iraqi National Museum in the wake of the American invasion in 2003 was maybe, just maybe, designed to cover up the acquisition by certain powers that be of certain ancient technologies that could disrupt the present-day corporate and religious status quo. Mars' leisurely and incomprehensible meandering through the history of the Illuminati eventually gets around to recapitulating most of the secret society topics we've covered, albeit far more credulously, as you might expect. And on the aforementioned topic of his presumed non-racism, he also has a very line-straddling chapter about the influence of Zionism on Illuminati conspiracies. He's at pains to distinguish a critique of Zionism from anti-Semitism, but given that his critique of Zionism is, basically, that it's an Illuminati plot, and given how tightly terms like Illuminati, international bankers, and Jews have been entwined in conspiracist thinking, his position isn't on the side of angels as one might hope, especially since he has a traditional conspiracist view of the perfidy of the Rothschild banking family. So, kind of yuck. We gotta keep this wagon train rolling if we want finally to see the end of the secret society's talk, so we'll blaze through some other highlights of Mars' simultaneously dull and outrageous fantasies about the Illuminati. As you might expect, he leverages both the proven fraud of the Priory of Sion and the ahistorical fantasies woven by Albert Pike in service of Scottish Rite masonry as evidence of the validity of other questionable sources. Apparently no one ever told him that backing up one spurious source with an equally spurious source is a complete waste of time. Or, to once again quote the young and then-funny Dennis Miller, two of shit is shit. 
He also tries to make conspiracy hay out of the acknowledged similarity between the utopian ideals of Karl Marx and other 19th century revolutionaries and Weishaupt's group. When really what it amounts to is emulation combined with coincidental confluence of aims among those groups, each of which was, after all, revolutionary. Well, let's not dismiss him so quickly here, Unicorn. After all, he does quote a source. According to author Douglas Reed, a former London Times correspondent, communism sprang directly from the Illuminati. When Weishaupt died in 1830, he wrote, his order was probably stronger than it had ever been, but was about to change its name. The same organization with the same aims was in the late 1840s to emerge as communism. Reed also said, communism and the Russian Revolution also were the greatest Judaic triumph and vengeance on record, as they were organized, directed, and controlled by Jews who had grown up in the Talmud-controlled areas of Russia. He said that by following the Talmud law, thou shalt reign over every nation, and the Lord thy God shall set thee on high above all nations of the earth. The Jewish leaders of the revolution organized as a permanent destructive force with a permanent center of governance and a permanent armed force ready to conquer other nations. Intriguing. Now, just a quick Google search to learn a bit more about Mr. Reed. Oh, look at our old friend Wikipedia. Douglas Lancelot Reed was a British journalist, playwright, novelist, and writer of books with political themes. His book, Insanity Fair, examined the state of Europe and the megalomania of Adolf Hitler before the Second World War. Oh, sounds like a perfectly reasonable source. By the time of his death, Reed had been largely forgotten except for various remarks about Jews. Of course he was. Mars also claims that Alexander Hamilton... Alexander Hamilton? Alexander Hamilton! That's the very one. That his work to charter a national bank was obviously an Illuminati plot to take over the financial system of the young United States. So, who's in the Illuminati now? Mars quotes authors who name names. Fritz Springmeier, the controversial author of Bloodlines of the Illuminati, reports that the modern Illuminati is led by 13 prominent families. He gives the names Astor, Bundy, Collins, DuPont, Freeman, Kennedy, Lee, Onassis, Rockefeller, Rothschild, Russell, Van Dyne, and Merovingian, with others, such as Reynolds, Disney, Krupp, and McDonald, as intermarried extended families. We fully expect that in 50 years or so, a book with similar standards will recapitulate an updated list sporting monikers like Bezos, Gates, Tusk, Kardashian, Knowles, and Winfrey. Clearly, this is once again the sort of common-sense speculation. You're right to hear big sarcasm quotes around that common sense. That conspiracy authors regularly pass off to their all-too-receptive audiences as well-researched fact. The result? A huge number of people who simply know that the Astors, DuPonts, and Rockefellers are in the Illuminati. After all, the researchers say so. A couple more from Mars. One big part of his research consists of retelling stories from supposed Illuminati defectors. These folks, born into the family business of malfeasance and secret world ruling, choose to cast off these golden chains and instead spread the truth about the nefarious plans of their very own kin. But they're, I mean, not like, super convincing? They can unquestionably be a riot to read, though. For example, consider this tidbit, related by a reputed former Illuminatus known only as Zvali. Young children are given psychic surgery, where the eye is placed inside and they are told that Horus will snatch their soul if they ever try to leave, or if they tell, or that the eye will explode 
The symbol on the dollar is reinforcement for every Illuminati child who sees one, and the reminder that they are being watched. So what he's saying there is that in addition to inexplicably advertising their secret plot to take over the world on every single US dollar via the legendary eye in the pyramid, harried Illuminati parents are also using the symbol as a sort of reverse Santa Claus to frighten their children into staying in line? Certainly appears so, but that's not the only first-hand report he quotes. And this next one hits close to home. A most unbelievable website appeared in December 2005, posted by Mimi L. Eustace, the daughter of Samuel Todd Churchill, said to be a high-level member of a New Orleans secret Mardi Gras society connected to the Illuminati. I get the feeling Mars doesn't mean the same thing we do when we agree this story is most unbelievable. Eustace spins a plot where Yankee agents posing as revelers used an existing social club in New Orleans as a cover to create a front for an international banking cartel, the House of Rothschild, headquartered in Europe, as well as for Skull and Bones, a branch of the German Illuminati established by William Russell in 1832 at Yale University. The name of this newly formed secret group was the Mystic Crew of Comus. Hold on a second there, chum. That there crew of Comus we just heard about is a real thing, the first big Mardi Gras crew ever started in New Orleans. And yes, by the time it stopped parading in 1992... Mostly because they were mad that New Orleans passed an ordinance requiring Mardi Gras crews to allow black people in. Comus was widely known not only as a racist group of old fuddy-duddies, but also as one of the worst-throwing crews in all of Mardi Gras. So, like, good riddance. But goddammit, you're not going to tarnish my Mardi Gras with Illuminati accusations. He means it, people. Tell him, D. There are several other tales of Illuminati growing pains, but some of them read almost like Mars is leveraging undiagnosed mental illness into spurious evidence for his silly fantasies, so we're going to skip those. But we will cap this with a brief mention of a source so reliable he conveyed his message on the Above Top Secret forum. Is that some sort of special invite-only dark website where secret agents and covert operatives exchange war stories? No, it's a web forum where any jackass can write anything he or she... But let's face it, mostly he. Once. Just like the rest of the internet. Hidden Hand said he was a member of the family, a group of elitists aligned with extraterrestrials. They are alternately called the Illuminati, Nephilim, Custodians, Watchers, and Advanced Beings, and all are the product of distinct bloodlines that have passed along wealth and power from one generation to another. I am a generational member of a ruling bloodline family, Hidden Hand proclaimed. Our lineage can be traced back beyond antiquity, from the earliest times of your recorded history and beyond. Our family has been directing the play from behind the scenes, in one way or another, before the rise and fall of Atlantis. Yes, that was indeed perfectly real. We are born to lead. It is part of the design for the current paradigm. Current paradigm established, we bid a fond farewell to Mr. Mars and his very silly book and turn our attention to a topic I am woefully ill-equipped to weigh in on. As previously noted, we can't explicate each of the imagined Illuminatis that our fellow humans continue to obsess over, but we can do our best to explain one of them, specifically the version of the Illuminati conspiracy that absolutely obsesses a subset of hip-hop fandom. Test. 
Arizona really busted a move and got fresh and dope on that one, didn't he? Yeah, boy! That Simply Awful Flavor Flav is all you're getting out of us in terms of hipping and hopping, as I am acutely conscious of the thin cultural ice my white ass is treading on here, and I plan to remain accordingly cautious. Still, I am in fact a fan of hip-hop. Well, like old hip-hop, and like Outkast and Goody Mob, which, come to think of it, is probably old hip-hop at this point and run the jewels and Kendrick in pre-crazy Kanye, but he's full-on old man shakes fist at cloud about SoundCloud rappers. And I found it weird over the years to hear stories and rumors about one or another artist whose meteoric rise ends up associated, in some observers' minds, with a sort of black music-specific version of the centuries-old Illuminati conspiracy theory. Plus, there's the fascination with Illuminati symbology that Tupac and other major artists have featured in their work, whether it represents the price of fame or the behind-the-scenes manipulators who are bent on cutting artists down in their prime, why would fans of this distinctly urban African-American music genre feature so many expressions of interest in the afterlife of a failed Bavarian revolutionary group? Now, there clearly are reasons that black people, especially in the United States, may be doubtful or even cynical of official explanations for anything. We need hardly even list the reasons. But here's a few. Chattel slavery, three-fifths compromise, fugitive slave laws, failure to provide post-Civil War reparations, Jim Crow, lynchings and assassinations whose perpetrators were let off by all-white juries, the Tuskegee Airmen, the Tulsa Massacre, failure of school integration, Reagan's racist Wilfer Queen anti-black dock whistles, Rockefeller drug laws, unwillingness to do prison reform, predatory lending practices leading to widespread evictions and foreclosures in black communities during the housing crisis, the unending racist smears against our first African-American president, the negative reaction to every pro-civil rights gesture from kneeling during the anthem to the largely peaceful Black Lives Matter protests, and let's say 50% of anything that came out of Donald Trump's mouth between 2015 and this morning. Right. So if anyone should get a pass for a little conspiracy-friendly suspicion, it's the young black people who have been the beating heart of hip-hop since its inception. But why this version? Why is the Illuminati just as attractive as a conspiracy focus point for free-floating anxiety among fans of everyone from Tupac to Gucci Mane as it was for the alt-right white nationalist conspiracy theorists who stormed the Capitol in 2021? It's easy to find evidence that people believe there's a close connection between rap royalty and the ill-defined Illuminati. But surprisingly, if you search YouTube, the results you get will skew toward some very sensible rappers discussing the whole thing in extremely reasonable and pragmatic terms, or simply laughing it off. I think a brother use anything in order to make it. It's all about profiteering. To me, a motherfucker throw up a pentagram to sell three records. They ain't going to no goddamn meetings and shit. Show ass going home watching reality TV and counting your stacks. Hip-hop rumors. Did French Montana get initiated into the Illuminati? And if that is the case, can you bring me in too, fam? The Illuminati come to your house. I'm going to let him in, and I'm going to sign right there. Oh, for, I'm going to bring him in, let him be my mother. Exactly, sign her up my too. Son. Yeah, get the whole fam in there. The whole fam, whole fam Illuminati. Yeah, maybe like a family discount joining. Yeah, like how can we get a family plan? A family plan, exactly. Yeah. We got good credit, I need it. Why do you think there is so much rumors? 
about Illuminati, this and that. Why this secret organisation that everyone seems to know about, but knows nothing about. The secret society is the people that's rich. They hang around with each other. Exactly. That's bottom line. Yeah. You know, people that got, you know, same thing to lose. Has the Illuminati approached you yet? The Illuminati need to stay away from me because it's like, I'm too powerful. But that's what they do. They come for the powerful niggas and they try to bring them to the dark. So yes, the Illuminati has approached me and I told them, fuck off. I feel like directors and um, uh, people that do imagery who went to school the past last 10 years, these are some things that they learn, which is symbols, um, different icons, just to get us talking. Right. I'm the director. I'm shooting this shit. You don't know this fucking behind you. You fucking titty boy. You Jay-Z. You don't, You just standing here with your clothes on and your hue blow. You don't know what the fuck I'm doing. When people go online and say, Vlad is an Illuminati. And guess what happened? The views go up. The views don't help Vlad. The views help me, right. the fucking director. I have questions like this. Is it only in rap? I mean, Denzel Washington has done 100 movies in a row. What group is he in? Uh, my take on the Illuminati is all these rappers are fucking wannabes. They want to be. You know, it's the same way when rappers were, oh, I'm John Gotti and I'm you know, Mafia and Mafioso, Kill Kill. They are promoting the Illuminati imagery. They are. Now, are they part of the big world power that's, you know, and sh- no, they're not. They're nothing. They're just rappers rapping, try to pretend like they're part of something bigger than, than, than they really are. Sure, you might be thinking, you skeptics think there's nothing to it but rumors, and that's just what those Illuminati motherfuckers want you to believe. And if that's the case, then boy, are there some hip-hop fans who agree with you. Not that you'll see them in your YouTube results. In spite of ongoing criticism that they should be doing more, we can assure you, given that we spend way too much time trying to find crazy people saying crazy shit online, it has gotten much harder to do so using YouTube's and Facebook's, Twitter's, etc. own tools. Thankfully, the Google algorithm can still be cajoled to focus its power on finding tailor-made crazy pants videos like these. Look at this picture of a Christian worship concert. Now look at this picture of a Jay-Z concert. What's the difference? Notice how they have their hands lifted up, giving praise to Jay-Z. It's no coincidence that he calls himself Hova, which is short for Jehovah, which is God's name in modern Hebrew. Jay-Z knows that he's being worshipped. Because he sold his soul to be in that seat. But almost everybody knows that Jay-Z is a Freemason Illuminati member. So I want to deal with his wife, Beyonce. Let's talk about Aaliyah. The truth on why Aaliyah died, her death was planned out by someone who loved her and needed her for his own blood sacrifice. Now, you know, you got all these characters getting down with the Illuminati, you got rumors about people being in the Illuminati, you know, who's there, what is the Illuminati, you know, if you don't know what the Illuminati is by now, you might as well turn off your TV, because you still don't know what hip-hop is, you might as well pick up a book, start all over, you know what I'm saying, because right now, we're living in some of the most pressured and manipulated times, you know what I'm saying, the pressure and manipulated times, and they've been working through us, they've been seeping through the minds through us through movies and music and commercials. And, One you know, thing we noticed, listening to these earnest truth-tellers, was how sensitive they were about the fact that others didn't believe their theories. As one of these indignant muckrakers notes, It's perceived that the Illuminati is just a conspiracy theory, and when you try to wake people up, they, it's hard because they feel you're nuts. Wait, I'm sorry, they do what? They fill your nuts. No, no, I think I missed it again. They... Fill your nuts. Jesus, that's awkward. What do they do next? 
They put it right in our faces. If you're keeping score, that's absolutely the most puerile thing we've ever done, and I regret nothing. You may have noticed the mention of blood sacrifices in that audio. These accusations appear to be key to the hip-hop Illuminati conspiracy, that above a certain level of success, it's safe to assume that an artist reached those heights by signing a pact with the Illuminati and willingly sacrificing someone else's life to their demonic occult masters. Remember how we said it seems like most of those spreading Illuminati rumors are not hip-hop notables in their own rights, but rather fans or peripheral hangers-on? Well, there's a big exception, a major figure from the early days of the genre who seems obsessed with spreading the idea that the Illuminati and their lust for blood dominate modern music. And that exception is one, Professor Griff. If you're old enough to remember the emergence of Public Enemy, you may also remember the group's most controversial member. Flavor Flav? Heavens no. I mean Professor Griff, the leader of the S1W, Soldiers of the First World, the paramilitary-ish camouflage drill squad that looked so pants-shittingly black and militant to white conservatives of the era. While the S1W are still a vital part of the PE experience, Griff was booted out of the group in the early 90s after a series of very anti-Semitic statements he gave in press interviews. How anti-Semitic? Well... He suggests that Jews were responsible for most of the evil in the world, and that if Palestinians killed all the Israelis, that would be A-OK. We bring this up for two reasons. First, so we can play you this incredible skit from the Dead Milkmen's 1990 record, Metaphysical Graffiti. Yeah, my sister's really moving up in the world. She dates a full-blown professor. Goes by the name of Professor Griff. He's a great guy. He's a good old boy. That wild old Professor Griff. I think he's a history professor. miss those snotty punk bastards. But more germanely, we think it's appropriate to note that Griff remains a sought-after lecturer on the, let's call it, open-to-extremely-ill-supported-research speaking circuit. And therefore, he ends up quoted all over the fucking place in videos about hip-hop stars, the Illuminati, and the supposed blood sacrifices that allow the former entrance into the latter. You want to operate in that $20 million club and higher, $100 million club where these brothers are operating in? Oh, you got to pay your pay the price. You got to bond yourself to these people forever. Let's look at some of the other people that have bonded themselves to this demonic energy. When Kanye West wanted to be up in that space so bad, he signed the oath, took the oath rather, and signed on, became a mason and took the oath, um, um, wrote Lucifer, son of the morning, for Jay-Z, and that was his initiation, and sure enough, he lost his mom. Well, that's all well and good, but Griff's not putting a lot of asses in seats in the 21st century, and thank God there's no one who has a big platform who would be crazy enough to actually feature Griff's Illuminati bullshit. Professor Griff, uh, one of the great granddaddies, one of the icons, one of the founders of rap and what is hip-hop, you can't really think of it. Uh, We're not going to make you listen to a toxic dose of Alex Jones's voice. For a complete list of side effects, please refer to a false flag episode available in the feed. So to round out our coverage here, it made sense once again to pull open the Kindle Unlimited magical bag of self-published insanity and see what we can root around and find at the bottom. That's my 
First, we turn to Rebecca Scott, who wrote the books Hip Hop Illuminati and Hip Hop Illuminati 2. Prior to receiving divine guidance that instructed her to write the first of these books, We don't make it up. We just quote it. Ms. Scott's author note indicates she worked in the industry for decades, mostly as a manager. But as we just reported, the Lord told her back in 2010 to get started on exposing the occult demons who have unfortunately taken near-complete control of the rap world. On behalf of all sarcastic podcasters, we'd like to thank the deity for this inspiration. The most confusing thing about Ms. Scott's diagnosis of the Illuminati's takeover is that she insists you can see their work in everything from Lil Wayne's meteoric rise to the top of the charts to Easy es AIDS diagnosis and death, from Jay-Z's and Beyonce's position at the absolute pinnacle of global fame to Wu-Tang rapper Old Dirty Bastards Tragic, but not exactly unanticipated demise from drug overdose. Left Eye of TLC, dead because of her Illuminati association. Aaliyah, dead in a plane crash because somebody else was sacrificing her to the Loomies to get ahead in the business. Rihanna is in the Illuminati because of the way she acts during certain of her videos. The Kanye West VMA stunt during Taylor Swift's acceptance speech. I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Was part of a satanic rite to initiate Swift into the Illuminati. Lauren Hill's career burnout and other issues are part of the sacrifice she's made to avoid working for the Illuminati. R. Kelly's downfall is because he was too good of a servant to the Illuminati. DMX, who was still with us when these books were written, got thrown in jail for dissing Illuminati golden boy Jay-Z, and not because he had racked up a truly impressive series of legal issues, one of which was bound to bite him in the ass eventually. It's heads I win, tails you lose. Whatever happens, to whomever, wherever, under whatever circumstances, it's all the Illuminati. The books are full of delicious tidbits. For example, ever since Jay-Z and Beyonce announced that they were giving their first child the oh-so-celebrity moniker Blue Ivy, people have speculated about the reason for the name. Suggestions include Hova's legendary blueprint albums and the fact that the couple both consider the number four significant to their lives. And of course, a Roman numeral four is... They get it. But Ms. Scott knows the real reason. Quote, the female child born in 2012 was appropriately named Blue Ivy. Ivy equals Illuminati's very youngest. Oh, of course. It's so obvious in retrospect. You doubt her? And you think this supposedly all-powerful organization would be pretty stupid if they put their symbols all over everywhere while trying to stay secret? Well, she knows why that's the case, too. My friend will say, if the Illuminati is real, why did they put out all their clues and symbols everywhere? I thought they were a secret society. If they were so secret, why would they do that? Now see how that worked? The Illuminati consists of smart, and I mean really smart people. They even have scientists and psychologists. And their reverse psychology trick worked on many people. And they don't remove the information for the same reason too. So people will deny them. It's all about reverse psychology. Wouldn't it be proof of their existence if they removed all the info about them? Please. Think this all out wisely. Do all of you enjoy hearing the gears of the author's brain screaming as they struggle to grind through her cognitive dissonance? Or is that just me? Ms. Scott isn't done naming names. Not by a long shot. Black Entertainment Television is... An Illuminati front whose sole purpose is to dilute the minds of African Americans with perverse ideals and to slave their minds by showing violent, ignorant programming. Hit me again. The Illuminati control the schools in order to make sure that young people learn to enjoy strange, tuneless music and weird, outlandish games. They also replace people with doubles. For many years, they recruited lookalikes who would serve their ends. Now they are perfecting cloning technology that will let them replace anybody. 
delectable. Unfortunately, not all of her wild ravings are so easy to stomach. Did Jennifer Hudson sacrifice her family for fame? She says, Jesuit, what are you going to make me read? No, you're right. I'll do it. By the way, terrible grammar and missing punctuation are the fault of the original author. Gregory King, the father of Jennifer Hudson's nephew Julian, claims he heard his son's murder might have been an Illuminati sacrifice being that Jennifer is an Eastern Star, female Mason. He mentions it as being the reason she is where she is now. According to the police, that little boy was shot in the head and tortured. This disgusting murder has all of the earmarks of a ritual sacrifice to me. Oh, and have you noticed how Jenny has considerably stepped up her game since then? End quote. Ugh. That was fucking vile. In case you missed the actual story, in 2008, Hudson's mother, brother, and nephew were murdered by her sister's estranged husband, who had been heard threatening to kill his wife's family literally dozens of times prior to the crimes. There's no mystery here, and apparently no depths to which Ms. Scott won't sink. Illuminati Hill! Illuminati Hill! Illuminati! Moving on, we'll close out with a look at Sacrifice, Magic Beyond the Mic, written by an extremely prolific author who calls himself Isaac Weishaupt, an obvious homage to the Illuminati founder. Goodreads pegs Isaac's current output at 23 volumes, meaning he might be the heir to Jim Mars' mantle of conspiracy logoria. And his conspiracy game is on point. By on point, you mean he marshals shoddy research with a few unrelated facts to draw conclusions that are either unsupported or just obviously wrong? Precisely. He comes out the gate strong, suggesting that the origins of the Illuminati's takeover of hip-hop can be traced to the Boule, a fraternity-style organization of educated black men that was modeled after conspiracy theorist favorite Yale's then-whites-only Skull and Bones Society. Weishaupt has plenty to allege about this group, starting with his suggestion that they were the first African-American secret society. Um, what about Prince Hall Freemasons? <laughs> I'm so proud of you, Dana. You have been listening. Yes, the Prince Hall Freemasons predate the Boulay Society by like 120 years, but our Isaac has only begun to spout weird shit about this topic. The Boulay was established by the Illuminati in order to patrol the black communities and prevent any uprisings. Conspiracy theorist Steve Coakley claims that Dr. Martin Luther King, Jesse Jackson, President Barack Obama, and Bill Cosby are all members of the Boule. He claims they are posing as civil rights activists, ultimately support the Illuminati agenda. The allegation is that they perform homosexual rituals that are recorded for the sake of blackmail and do the bidding of the super elites in order to gain access to even higher positions of power. Some of the things that actually support this theory are the perpetuation of negative messages throughout the black community and rap music. Gangster rap that glorifies black-on-black violence, calling each other the N-word, referring to the women as bitches, or just reinforcing the message that poor urban black youths are doomed to stay in the ghetto are all pervasive. Wait, how the fuck did he connect this group to first those prominent black people and then to control of hip-hop? Well, let's see here. He doesn't. But he has more evidence. The Boule also uses a black ball to cast votes, a concept that was repeated in the MTV reality contest show From G's to Jets, 
that took gangsters and thugs and tried to reform them into gentlemen. Oh, well then. Didn't realize the case was so clear-cut. Carry on. Yeah, let's see what he has to say about the Rodney King riots. One of the deadliest riots in U.S. history was the 1992 Los Angeles riot that sparked as the result of the trial that found LAPD officers not guilty on charges of excessive force against Rodney King, even though there was video evidence. This event was covered in detail by all major media outlets, and 53 people died from April 29th to May 4th of 1992. Many hip-hop artists spoke out against the LAPD, but I'd like to mention some occult aspects of this event that suggest a potential ritual of the Illuminati. Sadly, this tragedy occurred, or perhaps was orchestrated, over the pagan holiday of Beltane. This holiday used to be observed with sacrifices to the deity Baal through bonfires which derive from bale fires or Baal fires. Aside from the basic description of the riots, everything about that was wrong. Baal, that was a deity worshipped by other groups inhabiting the same region where the Israelites lived back in Old Testament times. Their gods ended up the bad guys in the Jews' version of the scriptures. That figure has nothing to do with Beltane, a seasonal ritual celebrated by Gaelic peoples. Essentially a proto-Irish and Scots. So he's only like 3,000 miles off. The confusion appears to be that there is a Celtic deity with a similar name, but for Christ's sake, just do the minimum amount of due diligence, dude. Oh, and bonfires have nothing to do with Baal either. The name derives from bone fires. He then immediately goes on to suggest that the release of Dre's classic The Chronic later in 1992 was a watershed in bringing the glorification of drugs, violence, and the gang life home to middle America. Which, as middle school Jesuit, whose first surreptitious hearing of the legendary super-violent, incredibly raw, easy-e, easy-does-it album, occurred at a life-changing sleepover way back in 1988, can tell you is a load of shit. If anything, the chronic was lighter on the violence and instead emphasized being, well, laid back. With my mind on my money and my money on my mind. That was a Snoop solo track. It is not on the chronic. I know, I know, but it's the same general era Dre produced it and the line was too good to pass up. We should take this opportunity to talk a bit more about Tupac Shakur, a legendary artist gunned down far too young and one of the big obsessions of this and many other hip-hop conspiracies. On the surface, there's good reason for that. Shortly after his murder in 1996, his first posthumous album was released under the artist's pseudonym Machiavelli, titled Don Illuminati: The Seven Day Theory. Yeah, that would lead people to associate the man with the Illuminati now that you mention it. The album itself, though, in spite of the title and circumstances surrounding its release, is not obsessed with conspiracy, nor even really with his own violent death, though he definitely does mention that idea here, as he does on all of his other albums. You can find any number of videos online collecting all of Pac's references to his own demise. I'm having visions of leaving here in the hearse. I see death around the corner. Gotta stay high while I survive in the city where the skinny niggas die. They bury me, bury me at the Z, nigga. I'm with the to my head. But Weishaupt calls out one specific song, the title of which we're not going to say because, obviously. A song Tupac did with rapper Richie Rich called N-Words Done Changed was released just two months after Tupac's murder, and in it, Tupac foreshadows his own death. What they tell me, I'm making these motherfuckers hop on their toes like Calvin Bali, I've been shot and murdered. Can't tell you how it happened. Word for word, but best believe that N-word's gonna get what they deserve. 
Fig also spoke about his death on Suicidal Thoughts, the last track on Ready to Die. I swear to God, I feel like death is fucking calling me. At some point, you have to believe these rappers had the foresight to know what was going to happen to them. Then there's the fact that so much music was released after his death, much of which continued on the theme of Tupac's potential for a violent end. So, was the Illuminati involved? Well, if you want pat answers, Isaac W. has you covered. Let me stay on the theme of Illuminati blood sacrifice and just say that there's obviously a conspiracy and well-orchestrated cover-up with the deaths of both Tupac and Big. Biggie Smalls was killed after leaving a Vibe magazine after-party in Los Angeles. Tupac was gunned down on a packed Las Vegas strip with no apparent witnesses. Also, take a look at some of their albums that seem to have aspects of predictive programming when they foreshadowed their own deaths. Not sure what the fuck aspects of predictive programming means, but he seems to think the case is closed. But friends, consider how many rappers, many of whom were raised in environments that exposed them to violence from a young age, some of whom were previously in the drug trade, or at the very least grew up on what we euphemistically call the mean streets or the ghetto, have seen their friends and family die young. And naturally then, how many have mused on the possibility that they themselves might die young? But then how many of those actually do? I mean, too many, obviously. But just basic math tells you that most people, even in those circumstances, end up living a natural lifespan. It's a hugely popular trope. Hell, it's not even limited to hip-hop. The idea of living fast, dying young, and leaving a beautiful corpse has been part of youth culture since at least James Dean. So if enough artists convey the sentiment, it's inevitably going to appear prescient when you hear it from the small subset of those artists who do in fact end up dying young. Like, for example, Dean himself. Just remember, for every Tupac or Biggie who seems to have predicted their own deaths, there are a hundred Roger Daltrys who, in spite of their protestations, have long, long, long outlived their own relevance. Naturally, the book hits on all of the Jay-Z stuff we mentioned before, but we're only going to touch on one additional point. The indisputable fact that his legendary The Blueprint album was released on September 11th, 2001. This, of course, is no coincidence, but rather an obvious symbol of his Illuminati membership. Why, then, doesn't Isaac Weishaupt spare a moment to mention the album Party Music by Oakland hip-hop underground legends The Coup? Why? Was that album also released on the same day as The Tragedy? Not the day, but the same month, September of 2001. But the difference is that the cover of Jay-Z's album released that day features the artist relaxing and smoking a cigar. The Coup album cover, already printed and scheduled for release within a week or two of that September 11th, features group leader Boots Riley literally detonating a bomb with the actual World Fucking Trade Center exploding in the background. You're making that up. I am not, as a simple Google search will prove to you. And the album is completely on brand for the coup. Their avowed communists and symbolically blowing up a huge symbol of global capitalism is kind of their jam. That really happened. But it goes unmentioned in this book, in favor of the decidedly less spooky coincidence of Jay-Z releasing an album on the same day. Presumably, that's because no one has accused Boots & Co. of being in the Illuminati. Holy fucking shit, that's weird. Indeed it is. So what's next? Oh, yeah, we're just going to let you hear from Weishaupt himself about Dre and his headphones. The theory that the headphones crafted by Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine in 2008 are used for a satanic purpose. The support for this idea is that the products are placed in various Illuminati symbol-loving artist videos, such as Miley Cyrus, Nicki Minaj, Robin Thicke, Ariana Grande, etc. 
The elites of the asset management Carlyle Group invested around $500 million into Beats. And you might recognize that name because Michael Moore highlighted their conspiracy involvement in the film Fahrenheit 9-11. In just six short years, the Beats headphones got sold to Apple for over $3 billion, making Dr. Dre the richest human being to come from the hip-hop culture ever. Some question why Apple bought the headphones because true audiophiles have claimed they are some of the worst quality headphones on the market. They've been shown to only cost $14 to make, yet they sell for over $400 at times. This makes the parties involved true sorcerers as they've made something out of nothing, a concept I keep highlighting. You could have seen this coming if you analyzed the name and logo for Beats. They have a lowercase b, which looks like a 6, and theorists have claimed that makes the 666 if you add up all the b's on the product. If you also move the letters in the word, you'll go from Beats to Beast. Jesseret. This guy can't really believe this shit. Hard to say. He spends a lot of time acting like he believes it if he doesn't. Let's see. Weishaupt also suggests Eminem's fame was a deliberate ploy by the Illuminati to spread prescription pill usage. Before Eminem hit the scene, marijuana was the recreational party drug of choice for America's youth. The artwork on Eminem's first CD was a depiction of a Vicodin pill being broken open. On the song I Am Shady, he says... I think I got a generation brainwashed to pop pills and smoke pot till their brains rot. The glorification of pill usage in the lyrical content of this best-selling rapper paralleled the actual pill abuses in America over the course of the 2000s to the 2010s. The fact that an album released by one of the most influential rappers of all time depicted a Vicodin being used is quite ironic, with the fact that Vicodin abuses increased during that same time frame. So our Isaac is still super wrong here, but at least he's wrong in a different and interesting way. He's confusing correlation for causation. He thinks Eminem is the cause of increased pill usage, whereas it's obviously more likely that the rapper unacknowledged pill addict was instead a member of the demographic that turned to pill usage in the wake of economic collapse in Rust Belt areas like his native Detroit. A similar cultural assumption, that Britney Spears was the inspiration for the wave of babies named Britney, when in reality she was a member of that wave, was covered in the first Freakonomic books. There are plenty of other bugbears in this book, including how the legendary Super Bowl halftime wardrobe malfunction, where Justin Timberlake exposed Janet Jackson's evil, evil titty to a global audience, was all part of the conspiracy. If you look closely at Nipplegate, you'll see that she was actually wearing a nipple pasty in the shape of a star. This star was quite intricate, more so than a standard stripper pasty, and had eight points on it. In Crowley's magic system, this is the Eight of Wands, essentially the symbol of chaos, which represents the star of Ishtar and Venus, a feminine goddess principle. These tie us right back into Crowley's Whore of Babylon, who is the feminine incarnation of evil. All of his obsessions boil down to an insistence that the whole point of all the Illuminati skullduggery is to promote violence to suburban white teenagers, to make them obsessed with guns and death. And what was it that made the white audience listen? Violence. Hollywood and the West Coast brought gangster rap onto the scene, when rap actually started with a positive and motivational message on the East Coast. During the gangster rap golden age of the 1990s, three-quarters of all rap albums sold went to suburban, white, teenage customers. There was an insatiable desire for guns and violence, and that is evident all around us with intense video games and films. The music industry is just another aspect of this twisted, death-obsessed culture of ours. But of course, that same period saw the most precipitous drop in U.S. violent crime on record. 
So his key insight about the Illuminati's grand hip-hop plan is that it failed? The book is horseshit. Surprise. But there's no doubt that Illuminati talk does indeed resonate with a significant portion of the hip-hop audience. What do we make of that? Well, if you don't take the easy, conspiracy-friendly angle pursued by Scott and Weishaupt, one useful framing device might be the metaphor of Robert Johnson at the crossroads. There's an old blues legend that goes something like this. If a man wants to learn to play the guitar like no other, all he need do is find his way to the crossroads. If he waits there till midnight, the devil will appear and offer to tune his guitar. Once the act is complete, the man will be able to play anything he wants. And for this small favor, all the devil asks in return is the man's soul. That video by Polyphonic goes on to clarify and expand upon the Johnson legend, and you should definitely watch it. But we're not after the real story here, but rather the story the culture has preserved. That is, the idea that artists must sacrifice so much to master their art. All their interests, their relationships, or in extreme cases, even their health. That the sacrifice is tantamount to selling your soul to the devil. Or, more germanely to the current point, that artists are at the whims of all-powerful corporations that will screw them at every turn. That success requires obeying these corporate overlords, and in some ways, that feels like losing your soul. You don't need to imagine the culprit is the reincarnation of some Vivarians. You just need to see the tragedy that occurs when the powerful and self-interested can manipulate talented, desperate young people, leading not only to a situation where the entrenched control structure takes most of the profits from art they can't themselves generate, but it also imposes rules, conditions, images, and lifestyles that too often drive sensitive artists to the brink of madness or self-destruction. Which brings us to the end of this series. What, really? I actually thought this would go on forever. No, we are just about finished. And what have we learned? We've learned that seemingly every age spawns its own secret societies, each of which is based around the idea of keeping sacred information within the group. Some are real, religious-style ritual organizations, like the Eleusinian Mysteries. Others are formed for a specific purpose, like the Templars, and go on to notoriety and conspiracy legend due largely to circumstances beyond their control. Some are simply persecuted minorities who end up the objects of conspiracist fascination because only their enemies lived to tell their stories. Like the Cathars. While others, the Rosicrucians and the Priory of Sion, are fabricated out of whole cloth, only to be embraced as real by true believers of subsequent generations. Some have had clear globe-spanning influence on major events, like the Freemasons. And some have had a legendary impact that goes well beyond their actual accomplishments, like the Illuminati. When thinking about how to wrap this whole thing up, it kept occurring to me that these societies are so much a part of the way that many people see reality that the facts of the matter don't seem to matter. As Terry Mellinson related, Everybody wants to join because that's the way you get money. That's why to this day I get people from Africa saying, how can I join the Illuminati? If people are in dire straits, they want to join something that's going to give them a leg up in life. One useful thing that Jim Mars does in his ridiculous book is quote Robert Anton Wilson an author about whom we just had a lot to say in our Illuminati's book report episode. On the subject of Adam Weishaupt and the way his legend has grown to the point that he can fill whatever role any given person assigns him, Raw says this. It has been claimed that Dr. Weishaupt was an atheist, a Kabbalistic magician, a rationalist, a mystic, a Democrat, a socialist, an anarchist, a fascist, a Machiavellian amoralist, an alchemist, a totalitarian and an enthusiastic philanthropist. The last was the verdict of Thomas Jefferson, by the way. 
The Illuminati have also been credited with managing the French and American revolutions behind the scenes, taking over the world, being the brains behind communism, continuing underground up to the 1970s, secretly worshipping the devil, and mopery with intent to gawk. The one safe generalization one can make is that Weishaupt's intent to maintain secrecy has worked. No two students of Illuminology have ever agreed totally about what the inner secret or purpose of the order actually was, or is. There is endless room for spooky speculation and for pedantic paranoia once one really gets into the literature of the subject. If you were to believe all this sensational literature, the damned Bavarian conspirators were responsible for everything wrong with the world, including the energy crises and the fact that you can't even get a plumber on weekends. Exactly. And the whole study of secret societies in the end reminds us of one of the greatest of the great Jorge Luis Borges short stories, The Lottery in Babylon. The narrator, an expat from the fictionalized legendary city, explains that it started as a simple game of chance with cash prizes. The lottery was a failure until some smart folks came upon the idea of negative prizes, resulting in fines for some of the winners. This element of risk made playing the lottery almost a matter of honor for the men of the land. Soon, the fines transformed into jail sentences for the losers. Wait, losers had to go to jail? Didn't that make people stop playing? On the contrary, the lottery was more popular than ever. Think of the thrill of risking so much, Unicorn. Yeah, you said only men play this thing? Figures. In fact, the poorer classes, who couldn't afford to buy in, demanded that they be able to play as well. This completely changed the lottery, as Borges relates. It forced the lottery to be secret, free, and general. The sale of tickets for money was abolished. Every free man automatically participated in the sacred drawings of lots, which determined every man's fate until the next exercise. The consequences were incalculable. A happy drawing might motivate his elevation to the Council of Wizards or his condemnation to the custody of an enemy, or to find, in the peaceful shadows of a room, the woman who had begun to disquiet him or whom he had never expected to see again. An adverse drawing might mean mutilation, a varied infamy, death, sometimes a single event, the tavern killing of C, the mysterious glorification of B might be the brilliant result of 30 or 40 drawings. Over centuries, the lottery company became ever more secretive, inscrutable, and invisible, and their chaotic manipulations, whereby a powerful man may one day seemingly at random be ruined and a lowly person, equally unexpectedly, rise to prominence, became more mysterious. Eventually, the actions of the company were so obscure that it, in a sense, disappeared altogether. The company with divine modesty eludes all publicity. The orders which it is continually sending out do not differ from those lavishly issued by impostors. This silent functioning, comparable to that of God, gives rise to all manner of conjectures. One of them, for instance, abominably insinuates that the company is eternal, and that it will last until the last night of the world, when the last God annihilates the cosmos. Another conjecture declares that the company is omnipotent, but that it exerts its influence only in the most minute matters. There is one conjecture to the effect that the company has never existed and never will. A conjecture no less vile argues that it is indifferently inconsequential to affirm or deny the reality of the shadowy corporation, because Babylon is nothing 
but an infinite game of chance. Great story, but why are you telling us this? Because I think in the end, the role that secret societies like the Illuminati play in the epistemologies of the conspiracy-minded is pretty much the role of the lottery company in Babylon. Their banal origins often obscured, the legends about them grown popular, powerful, and disconnected from their historical point of origin, such that they're barely recognizable. They live on as an explanation in a situation that doesn't really owe us an explanation. If you don't choose to adopt the conspiracist frame, our world is exactly what you would expect. A chaotic mess occasionally and temporarily organized by evolved apes, spinning forward through time and space toward no destination except entropy. All a complete accident, driven by immutable, yet inscrutable, physical laws. Secret societies serve as a pseudo-historical grounding for whatever grand unified conspiracy explanation a given person chooses to layer on top of the real world's undirected substrate. They help conspiracists pretend they can force events into a framework that makes sense, however impossible it is to make that framework genuinely reflect reality. And in that way, these distinct and fascinating groups, whether complicit or not, are the scaffolding that supports the paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit us on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. We're on Twitter at Paranoid Strain, Instagram at The Paranoid Strain, and at facebook.com forward slash The Paranoid Strain. While you're there, please sign up for our Facebook group. We're happy to say it's full of really great people. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, whose work you can hear at their own channel on SoundCloud. And we are, of course, deeply indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Daniel Arizona keeps coming up with absolute fucking bangers for every topic we cover. Big Mucho taught us everything we know about audio production, and William UFO is the podcast Picasso. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Please do stick around after the theme song for some musical and unicorn-related bonus content. We're going into research mode for the next several weeks and will emerge with another year-plus long series, this one focused on explaining our contemporary conspiracy predicament. We're calling it QAnon, How Did We Get Here? And we can't wait to write it, produce it, and for you to hear it. In the meantime, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically.
So we're reworking the Net Betty scene in the 1976 classic Network. Net Beatty. Who's he? Oh, he's also supposed to be the one that uh, Eurosylvain is written about, right? Plus, they had to be celibate, give up their possessions, and become vegetarians. What are they, sort of like ancient insults? But they got so many of them doing floats. By the time Bacchus rolls, I'm fitting to pass out from all them abetas I drunk. Good luck with that. I fucking hate you. Dwarlin. 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 Now it just ceased to be a word. We want to know all the places you go in the shadows we are watching. We want to be all that you want to be. We want to be your beliefs. Les derniers mots de Jacques de Monet depuis son rocher brûlant étaient que dans un an et un jour, Philippe 
different these days. Most European countries are home to a huge variety of Christian churches, which are nearly empty because everyone's an atheist. Actually, slight quibble, but um, for example, the Scandinavian countries have um, no separation between church and state, and so they have a state church, which is also empty, but there really isn't a big variety of churches. And the ones that there are that are not the state church tend to then be quite sort of passionately visit it because those are the ones that people go to the trouble of taking. Even in Sweden and Norway, where they have just recently separated church and state, this still holds true. So, you know, Europe is really complex. But that's also interestingly, like, I think people are atheist in those countries also because the state church has been completely neutered because it's everyone's church, so it's no one's church. If it's the state church, it has to basically cover everyone in the country, so it can't be too extreme. Like, there's no competition to to push it into sort of an ideological extreme, as that, that means it gets really boring, um, which then helps secular, you know, help the secular values to win anyways. Like, I think in our state church back home, there was a, a bishop who went to court to uh, defend his right to not believe in God and still be a state-paid bishop in the state church. And uh, he didn't win, but it was almost, and everyone was like, ah, let him. Like, what's, what's, what's that business of yours? He cannot believe in God. Who does anyways? That's just nonsense. Like, no one really believes in God, after all. So, yeah, it was kind of funny. We We don't like legs, we don't. 
like steak, we don't like eggs, we eat a lot of fishes. We wish for dishes, the squishy fishy dishes, fishes, fishes over Mrs. actually both played the board game Carcassonne and I have visited the castle of Carcassonne and it is amazing. The castle, not the game. I'll never forget the day I locked eyes with thine The cutest land and the thought and the sun began to shine You wash my feet being driving with your So I actually have read it, and hilariously, when I first moved to New York to work for the UN, a colleague of mine, whom I respected a lot, didn't know very well at the time, gave me the book and said, oh, this is a really great book, you should really read it. And I sort of took that as like mandatory reading and thought this would, you know, help me get better at my job. So I started reading The Da Vinci Code, and I was like, that's really weird. This, this, this book is bad. Like, it is, it is in fact terrible but i didn't quite want to admit it to myself because i was so you know primed to think that it was an excellent book that i got like i think like at least like a third in where i was like okay this is nonsense and i just gave up and later found out that that colleague was not very bright 
Thank you very much. What's your name again? LG Sweet. <laughs> Thank you very much. I can't say that. Go for it. LG Sweet. That's terrible. <laughs> Thank you very much, LG Sweet. That's that's a terrible name. i
a perfected Knight of the Rose Qua and the Pelican. 18th degree, ancient and accepted right. What the fuck is that? I mean, I don't really mean that. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want the answer. <laughs> Including a scene on the fourth day wherein the betrothed, 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 betrothed. That's a terrible word. I'm in love with Rosie Crusher, and she's in love with me. And 40 minutes on the goddamn Rosicrucians, and you think this is gonna be longer than that? Actually, that is unforgivable.
fuck do I say that? Maester of work. Maester of work. I can't, I just, I, I dislike you so intensely. Let me try again. Maester of work. Maester of work. Work, work. Maester of work. <laughs> Maester of work. I hate you, Jesuit. I hate
Catch me when you can, wow. Catch me when you can, wow. Catch me when you can, along the pentagram. Catch me when you can, wow. Catch me when you can. Ripped from the headlines every night, from Scotland Yard to the Scottish Rite. They thought it was a sailor from the London docks Or a slaughterhouse butcher walking the blocks They thought they were clever and on the right track Until one day they got a letter from Jack Written in blood and was signed From hell Option A. Oh, sorry, that's our neighbor, like, sort of pulling her, her uh, laundry off the laundry system, which are like these sort of ropes or cords that connect between the walls at the back of the house. And it is uh, very, very uh, screechy, as you can hear. You can sort of pull it back. Yep, there it goes again. Pretty screechy. Oh, come on, lady. How much clothes could you possibly have left? Quite a lot, apparently. Shy as God, you are a kid. 
Flavor Flav? Flav? Flavor Flav? Flavor Flav? Flavor Flav? Flavor Flav? I say that right no 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 it was like i had it right like the first time or the first many times and then one day like played a joke on me when we first started dating and then i got it wrong ever since <laughs> pan galactic gargle blaster there is no dana only zool my cat can eat a whole watermelon i saw the best mind of my generation destroyed by madness starving hysterical naked Dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Remember, the world is chaotic, but is not out to get you. Or, at least, not you specifically. Oh, amazing! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. <laughs> 